If you haven't got podcasts, I feel bad for you, son. I got 99 podcasts, and this is one. <laughs> we, we don't have 99 podcasts, but we're working on it. So close. <laughs> everybody and welcome back to critically acclaimed the podcast where good taste and bad taste punch each other <laughs> with explosion fists oh no i uh i, I pitched a, a movie like that you, you did yeah oh that's right you did in explodey fists it's called boom fist yeah and, uh, it's, it's it's in the future boxing is the only sport left and all of the boxers are like genetically engineered to be super boxers, but not to hit harder, but to dodge punches. So uh, the fights all end with one punch because they all have grenades in their gloves, but they explode outward so it doesn't hurt the actual like fighter. Okay, if it was 1975 and mm-hmm. I was Roger Corman, you would have $800,000 right now. <laughs> Yay! Like, that's it, though. You got to make that work, but that's also, what you got. So Tom Cruise is interested. He's a bookie in Tom the Cruise, future. No, it's, 19, it's 1970s. Tom Cruise oh. hasn't been in a movie yet. It's Ron, Ron Howard's interested. Yes, there you go. Now, now you're cooking with gas. <laughs> and we can get John Carradine to play the president. Nice. But we can only get him for half a day. <laughs> He's got drinking to do. Mary Warrenoff <laughs> plays his wife. Uh, <laughs> my name is William Bibiani. I am a film critic for The Rap and Bloody Disgusting, and everybody calls me Bibbs. Uh, my name is Whitney Seibold. I write film reviews for uh, various outlets. IGN, uh, TV Guide printed me recently. Uh, I don't have a cool nickname. I don't need one. No, you're like the wind, baby. No. Or if you were, you'd have a nickname. I'd be the wind. <laughs> Whitney the wind, Seibold. Cold front approaching from the south. <laughs> That's when, a terrible nickname. It is. That's pretty bad. Uh, are, anyway, this week on the podcast, yeah, we got are, a bunch of reviews. What are, what are we reviewing this week? We got a ton of new reviews this week. Uh, we are reviewing Terminator Dark Fate, Martin Scorsese's The Irishman, Arctic Dogs, Earthquake <laughs> Bird, American Wait. Dharma, and Christmas Scavenger Hunt. Wait, Earthquake Bird is a real thing? That's I thought, a you, real I thought thing. you made that up. Yeah, we were going over our list of like titles of things <laughs> we've seen this week. Yeah, Earthquake Bird is real. It's not just like two random words that got shoved together in a generator. I, I honestly thought it was like a web browser. Like Earthquake, like Fire Dog or Lycos Fox, whatever you got out there. There was this there was this brief period in anime when like it seemed like every anime or manga was mm. just two random words shoved together, like mm. pumpkin scissors. <laughs> is that a real one? That's a real one. Oh my goodness. That is a very real mm. thing. And that and that's like the name of the lead character as well. I don't I don't remember. I never okay. saw Pumpkin Scissors, but okay. I know very well that Pumpkin Scissors is a real thing. Okay. Yeah. Um anyway, that's a lot of movies. That is also a lot of very random movies. Those are not movies you would watch together under most circumstances. Award season hasn't kicked into high gear yet, and uh, I think the industry is still trying to figure out what to do with November. Because it's it's not a dumping ground necessarily. Well, because we have Thanksgiving in November, and Thanksgiving's mm-hmm. usually a big weekend. Uh, people are busy on Thanksgiving, but then on Friday, everyone's out shopping or whatever. They want to go see a movie. Uh, Thanksgiving weekend is traditionally a very big weekend at the movies. Yeah. Um, but we're we're in this phase right now where there really isn't a month out of the year where a hit movie cannot open. Mm. It used to be that you well, January, always, <laughs> yeah, even January, January they, they they'll release a big movie in January every now and then. It'll make money, like Kung Fu Panda three came out in January. That made money. Oh, fair. Like it, it's uncommon, but it can happen. So 
they'll take a big risk on a major blockbuster in sort of an odd time of year under the idea, at least, that there's less competition. Mm. Therefore, more people will be willing to see Terminator Dark Fate. By the way, Alan, if you check the box office numbers, nobody saw Terminator Dark Fate. Terminator 6 tanked. Tanked real bad. <laughs> oh, made, like, my less goodness. Than, less than $30 million on a, like, a $200 million budget or something? That is a franchise, and we're going to talk about this because I know we have a different take on Terminator Dark mm. Fate, but... That is a franchise that I think has been killed not by Terminator Dark Fate, but by the crappy sequels that came before it. Like, mm. that, that Salvation and Genesis killed the franchise, <laughs> not Dark Fate. Too many mm. people got burned on Salvation and Genesis to want to take a risk on Dark Fate, which is a All shame right. because I, I, I liked it, spoiler alert. Mm. A lot of people have some good word of mouth going for it. But, yeah, a lot of people just staying away. They they well, totally burned by the franchise. They, they were trying so many different strange things that weren't working that by the time they retreated into something safe, it was boring again. Yeah, maybe. Terminator Dark Fate is exactly the same as the first two Terminator films. Which is the nice way of saying it's exactly the same as Terminator 2, which is a nice way mm-hmm. of saying it's the same as Terminator 1. Mm-hmm. There's this weird... I want to talk about each of the Terminator movies and where we stand on them briefly, right. but... I do want to get this out of the way right now. There is a strain of thought about Terminator Dark Fate that is going around that Mm. I cannot get behind. Because they're saying, oh, Terminator Dark Fate, well, just like Terminator 2. And I'm like, have you seen Terminator and Terminator 2 recently? Terminator 2 is a shameless rehash Mm. of everything in Terminator 1. Yeah. It's the same thing, but the characters are mixed around. Now Sarah Connor is Kyle Reese, and John Mm. Connor is Sarah Connor, and the Terminator... All of these things, their their whole lines of dialogue, whole shots, scenes, that play out exactly the same way with a different bad guy and different heroes. It's like Evil Dead 2. They just sort of upped the octane. Kind of. No, and listen, Terminator 2 kicks ass. I'm not... Crying Terminator 2, they just they told a similar story. It's a time travel story. It's a story of cyclical mm. things where humanity keeps making the same mistakes over and over again. So Terminator and Terminator 2 are kind of the same. Mm. Terminator 3 was kind of the same. Terminator 6 is kind of the same. It's 4 and 5 that tried to rework the formula and got kind of screwy with it and I think mm. kind of ruined it. But uh, let's we'll talk real, real fast. Uh, the first Terminator... Was uh, written and directed by James Cameron, who borrowed liberally from Harlan Ellison, who sued his pants off and, yeah, and got won, money. From what I understand, yeah, yeah. got money uh, and a credit on the film. Uh, if you've ever seen his work on Outer Limits, a lot of uh, Terminator was inspired by the episodes Soldier, which is really cool, and Demon with a Glass Hand, which is really cool. Demon with a Glass Hand is awesome. But I haven't seen every uh, one of the old Outer Limits episode, but I think Demon with a Glass Hand is the best one I've seen. Like it's okay. really neat. Um, it is the story of uh, Sarah Connor, played by Linda Hamilton, who was uh, you know just getting started in the industry. She only had a couple starring roles before then, and uh, she plays a young woman who has been targeted for extermination by a robot from the future. Played who wants Arnold, to... Yeah, played by Arnold Schwarzenegger. Arnold Schwarzenegger, who did not have a big career at the time. Like, Conan was a thing, mm-hmm. but everyone was like, Does, can we use him in more stuff? Yeah, Where, what good is he? A stoic killer robot from the future is a good role for him. Came uh, this close to being played by O.J. Simpson. That's uh, true. Different kind of movie, that. Very um, different movie. Yeah, it's uh, it's pretty fun. Michael Bean plays the human soldier, also from the future. He explains in exposition scenes that... Uh, in the future, the world will be taken over by evil machines, and the only way they, they're like losing the war in the future, so the only way to stop it is to send, send a soldier back in time and kill the mother of the resistance leader. Yeah. So it's mm. basically, 
I mean, we people really weren't talking about it on these terms at the time, but the more you think about it, the more it is about trying to regulate a woman's body. Yeah. Yeah, and it's about a woman trying to take back control over yeah. her life and her and her child. Now, the, the logical step when making a sequel to The Terminator is to have The Terminator just go further back in time. Not set it in 1984, but you set it in 1954. Mm-hmm. Or 1900. Yeah, or then whatever. Terminator 3, you set it in 1900. And then you get into medieval times, and eventually the Terminator's killing cavemen. That's what, <laughs> that's what you do. Well, the problem with that, that, that kind of makes sense, though, because you, you only, you, their information about the 80s was spotty enough as it is. Mm-hmm. So, like, trying to find Sarah Connor's ancestors no. 50 years earlier when they had different last names. You know, might might be a little trickier. So it, I can get it, that. It, yeah, in the nineteen eighty four film, he just points his finger. Uh, the Terminator robot points his finger in a phone book and just keeps and just going down a list, killing all of the women named Sarah Connor because he has no other recourse. Yeah, there's like five of them in town, and he's just killing them, going down mm. the list. Uh, it's really scary, actually. I think that's the thing people sometimes forget about the Terminator. It's basically a horror movie. Yeah, it is a horror action hybrid. The Terminator is a slasher. Mm. Uh, it's just a really unstoppable, awesome slasher with incredible visual effects. It's a very cheap movie, but it's a very inventive movie. It's a very well-written movie. Everyone's good in it. The music's great. Mm. Um, it's I, I plays with ideas we've seen before, but it does them in a new way. Yeah, when Michael Bean uh, is off in the movie, no spoilers there. Yes. It's a film from 1984. Yeah. Um, there's no fanfare. He's just sort of out... And, I mean, Sarah Connor's Sarah, upset, but she doesn't have time to she, mourn him. She's, she's still upset, being chased yeah, by a Terminator. She, she's she's just sort of on her own in that moment. So, uh, yeah, Michael Bean's good. He plays a good maniac. Uh, he's got a little bit nutty. Uh, and the big... I, that's not really a twist, but uh, he was sent back in time to protect her from the Terminator... And as it turns out, also father the resistance leader, mm-hmm. which turns, mm. which basically turns the entire thing into a paradox. Mm. My theory was little causality loops. My theory was uh, that John Connor was going to be born anyway; mm. otherwise, there would be no Skynet to send a Terminator back. So theoretically, whoever like Sarah Connor was dating at the time would have been uh-huh. John Connor's original father. But then the Terminator kills him and everything. Yeah. So um, Terminator One's great. Really great, really awesome, yeah. and it was followed. It was it was successful in theaters, but not like the biggest movie ever. Mm. It became the biggest movie ever on home video. It became big on home video. It actually, wasn't until Terminator Terminator Two was put into production that people started paying attention. Yeah, and on uh, mass anyway, uh, yeah, had, mass, it had yeah, big fans. But uh, Terminator Two somehow like hooked into something that got people to pay attention to the first Terminator in a way that they weren't before. I think the fact that mm. Schwarzenegger had blown up as a star, mm. so that was here. Like Schwarzenegger could open a movie. That's something that movie stars can't do anymore. The sheer fact that Schwarzenegger was in a movie mm. meant that no matter what that movie was, it would have a big opening weekend because people would see yeah, it because it's Schwarzenegger. And uh, the second one was also made by James Cameron. He had gotten super ambitious as a filmmaker at that point. He had already done The Abyss. This is really kind of working on uh, cutting-edge special effects. And uh, so he decided to do The Terminator again just with super special effects mm-hmm. and turned uh, the monster into the protector this time around. Yep. Uh, Schwarzenegger's the good guy. If you watch the film... The film is structured so as not to reveal that for a long time. Yeah, if you didn't know that going in, there's like a twist in the middle. Yeah, like we're kind of... Uh, John Connor's being chased by two Terminators, it seems, mm-hmm. and there's one on either side of him in a hallway, and you're not really sure like how effed he is. Well, we don't even know which uh, if Robert Patrick is a Terminator. 
We've never actually seen him kill anyone. Oh, he like not the guy unconscious, but mm. we didn't see that he's dead. He's probably dead, but we didn't see that. So the the whole thing is you're probably supposed to think that Robert Patrick, the guy who looks quite a bit like Michael Bean, you know, he's lean, he's mm. got blonde hair. Uh, he's probably going to protect the kid from the Terminator. And then he's in that hallway between Robert Patrick and Schwarzenegger. Schwarzenegger lifts a shotgun, aims it at John Connor, and then says, get down. Get down. And you realize <laughs> that he's the good guy. And all of a sudden, he's shooting Robert Patrick, who is exploding into mercury. <laughs> like the substance. Mm-hmm. Turns like he's. It turns out he's made of liquid. Yeah, which is which makes Good. no sense whatsoever, but is totally awesome. It's it's a really innovative invention. Uh, it's a really great use of a new special effect, and they use it creatively. Yeah, they didn't just have access to it and just sort of did whatever with it. They no. actually figured out creative things to do with it. Everything we can do with this, have him turn into people, mm-hmm. have him turn into knives, have parts of him like hanging from things mm-hmm. and then rejoin, or have him mold himself into the floor. All of these things were... You watch the movie today, it's still pretty inventive. There's so many movies that introduce a conceit, a mm. sci-fi or fantasy conceit, and don't do everything they can with it. Yeah. T1, not only does Terminator 2 do everything it can, it invented the idea of this. The T-1000 was not like a villain we'd been wanting to see in movies for a while. Uh-huh. They invented that idea. Like, the closest we had before the T-1000 was like the blob. Yeah. Which yeah. was cool, but it wasn't... Or, the- or uh, in comic books, we had, like... Um, Clayface. Well, there was, a, there was a Spider-Man villain who's made can melt into water. Um, oh, Hydro-Man. Hydro-Man. Yeah, a little bit like Hydro-Man. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can see that. But, um, yeah, no, he was, a, he was an original thing. Mm-hmm. And, boy, was he the coolest thing ever when he came out. Yeah. Terminator 2 uh, ends up turning Sarah Connor into a Terminator. That's what she felt she had to do to keep her son alive and protect him and train him for the future. Linda Hamilton completely reinvents herself in that movie, and she's fucking phenomenal. (laughs) Schwarzenegger's great in that movie. He's not typically considered a great actor, but he Mm. gives a really good performance in that. He's funny. He's got some tender moments. We see his character grow from a blank machine into something that is starting to understand humanity, and we have a lot of affection for that character as a result. Um, the action is amazing and it's not like quick cutting or even like slow-mo a lot of it. It's just clean. Mm. He just knows how to shoot a damn action. God, Terminator 2. (laughs) If you've never seen Terminator 2 on the big screen, by God do it. It's so cool. I know a lot of people have a a good deal of affection for, uh, James Cameron's Aliens, which he did before Terminator 2. And, um... That's the the kind of affection I have for Terminator Two. I, I don't have a lot of affection for Aliens, but uh, mm. yeah, Terminator Two feels like somebody trying to like break a mold and do something really creative uh, with action cinema. It's just exciting to watch. I think my favorite scene in the movie is when uh, the the T one thousand passes through a. a prison bars yeah. just sort of walks through them that's cool and then has to stop because the gun he was carrying is not made of liquid and it gets caught in the bars and he has to turn it sideways to get it out not, that's good filmmaking not I only thought is about it, that not only is a cool visual mm-hmm. effect it solidifies in our mind that he can't turn into a gun yeah he's can only be like a blob he can only be solid mm-hmm. objects and that is a limitation that they can actually mm-hmm. exploit that's cool. But it's also a comic moment. It's yeah. like, oh, oh, here we go, gun. All right. Yeah. Uh, the the director's cut of T2, I'd argue, is slightly better because there's a few even cooler things and a few plot mm. points that get explained a little better. Well, Michael Bean has a, a cameo in the yeah, there's director's like a, cut. It's like a dream sequence where he comes to visit Sarah mm. and helps her like have strength and you know tell her you got to protect your son now and because it's after she knows that the Terminator is back, so she's got to escape. Yeah. Um, 
But uh, yeah, I would argue that the director's cut is a slightly better film, but both versions are gangbusters and you got to see it. Hmm. Over 10 years later, we finally got Terminator 3, Rise of the Machines, a movie that I'm actually rather fond of. A big theme of uh, the first two movies, and this is something that uh, James Cameron has said he personally believes in, is that uh, there's no such thing as fate. Mm. He he doesn't believe in fatalism. He doesn't think that that certain things are destined to happen. He believes free will is is the moving force of the world. Pretty ironic in a a series of movies about a bootstrap paradox. More or less. And uh, Terminator 3 kind of throws that out the window. Uh, James Cameron wasn't involved in this one. It was directed by Jonathan Mostow. Who did an amazing uh, uh, road trip thriller movie called Breakdown. Breakdown is terrific. If you've never seen uh, Breakdown. uh, Kurt Russell and Kathleen Quinlan. And Jason. J.T. Walsh is the bad guy. Oh, probably the last great J.T. Walsh. J.T. Walsh, M.C. Gainey, Jack Ooh. Noseworthy. A lot, a lot of good, like evil, Jack. evil uh, character actors from the nineties. Jack Noseworthy was in that. I don't remember that. Yeah. Oh, okay. Mm. Cool. Um, but yeah, Jonathan Mostow took over, and the idea behind Terminator Three that is ju- that they didn't stop Judgment Day; they delayed it. Mm. The, the timeline <laughs> has changed, but human beings are human beings. And the, the gag that they come up with was actually really clever, I thought. Mm. Which is, we talked about how Terminator 1 and 2 are a bootstrap paradox. Wherein uh, Skynet goes back in time and ends up creating Skynet. Mm. Because it leaves behind Terminator parts and they reverse engineer it and create Skynet. Uh, and John Connor, they go back in time to protect John Connor. But John Connor is only born because they went back in time to protect John Connor. Mm. The timeline only makes sense is if at some point, at least once, Mm -hmm. John Connor and Skynet were created independently and then the timeline veered off because of time travel. Right. Terminator 3 takes that and runs with it. And it says that if all this shit hadn't happened, the government was still working on an AI... It probably it would have popped off no matter yeah, what, well, and John Connor would have been born anyway, and he would have actually ended up uh, dating or possibly even being married to uh, the daughter of the general who was behind the project, which is why he would have been allowed in the security bunker and actually saved during the nuclear holocaust. Not unclever. Not, not un- unclever. Not unclever, but it's clearly the result of people who had watched the first two movies too many times and were trying to <laughs> trying to think it out. Right. When really it's just causality loops and no no time travel story works. So they're trying to make a time travel story work, and it's not all that satisfying to watch. Um, well, it's got a gut that, punch ending. Like, it's a bummer yeah. of an ending. It's a, it's a good bummer of an ending. Arnold Schwarzenegger's back as the protector, but now he's infected by the evil Terminator. Only at the end. Who, uh, well, if, eventually. The evil Terminator this time is played by Kristana Loken, and she is also a liquid Terminator, but she has, like, a, an evil computer virus skeleton that can like take over machines essentially they're not really clear on what she's made of she's got mm. elements of the original terminator she's got elements of the but t-1000 she, but the big thing also, is she yeah. can control any machine she can control any machines and she can also she also has like shock powers in her hand yeah like she can part. turn her arm into a gun and yeah. shit um yeah they they're trying to up the ante again they're just trying to make it well. they're telling the same story again they're trying to up the ante again it doesn't quite work out um i do like that there's this sort of inevitability to Judgment Day. It's like, oh, and they're, it's going to go online. It's just going to immediately start killing people because that's what it's going to do. And when it comes, and it's like, there's all this sort of momentum toward that moment when Skynet becomes live and starts killing people. And when it does, it's just kill bots. Yeah. 
I, I appreciate that it's not like Arnold Schwarzenegger already. It's not yeah. that heavy, leaning too heavily on fan service. Have you seen the Sergeant mm-hmm. Candy deleted scene? Yes. That, where, uh, that should have been deleted because it's del- ridiculous, but it's funny. Mm-hmm. There is a Look this up. If you haven't seen it, go to YouTube. Terminator 3, Sergeant Candy. Like, <laughs> like the candy. Mm-hmm. All right? It is a it is a promo for all the st- cool stuff that they're doing here with Skynet and about how they're going to make a Terminator. And then Arnold Schwarzenegger is there as a soldier who they're going to model the Terminator after. Yeah. Really funny. <laughs> is that, that, which is why he, they look like Arnold Schwarzenegger. Arnold Schwarzenegger. It's really, really uh, funny. And then there's a great gag <clears throat> of Jack Noseworthy, which I'm not going to ruin for you. Because it's hilarious. Yeah. Um, I like Terminator 3 fine. I think it is a nerdy film. You're right. It's kind mm. of a fan... Uh, sort of a fan fiction-y thing. Like, how does this make sense? Mm-hmm. Well, they solved it. Um, I will also say this. The action in 3 is kick-ass. There is a truck chase at the beginning of the film mm-hmm. that I will put up there in terms of just pure adrenaline, mm-hmm. awesome stunts. They did it practically. It is right up there with Terminator 2 in terms of how oh, cool that action it's sequence terrific. is. It's terrific. They, they threw some money, especially at that one scene. But yeah, the special effects are fine. The action is really great. It's really propulsive. It moves so quick that you don't really stop to think about a lot. Yeah. As soon as the movie's over, you realize kind of how dumb it is. <laughs> yeah, it's a freight train of a film. Mm-hmm. I feel like I feel like Terminator Three was racing to set up Terminator Four because mm-hmm. the Terminator movie a lot of people always wanted was let's do one entirely set in the future, yeah, where everything's messed up and there are killbots everywhere. Maybe we maybe it could star adult John Connor and like teen Kyle Reese and like. That sounds like a good movie. Let's make that movie. But they needed to establish a Judgment Day actually happened after they prevented it last time. So that's why three exists. So then they created a few years wait, wait, later. Wait, but was that something anybody asked for? Yeah, uh, for I remember that. The I remember film that. about Terminators just set in the future. I mean, yeah, I, I remember that. That is what Terminator colon Salvation was all about. Yep. But I didn't know anybody wanted that. I remember talking uh, to a lot of uh, sci-fi fans mm. and conventions and things and that the popular idea was i just want one set in the future with adult john connor like oh, just well, i just want right. to see john connor take down skynet we keep hearing about it can we see it oh, we want to see the end of the war okay. yeah or, or, the, or the beginning and then the end if you want to do more than one film but whatever like do it so they ended up doing terminator salvation neat idea big old mess of a movie mm-hmm. uh ends up starring christian bale as john connor he doesn't actually have a lot to do. It's actually more about uh, what's his name from Avatar, Sam Worthington, mm. uh, who doesn't he's know like, he's a Terminator, but it's obvious from the beginning. Yeah, who's who's a Terminator is like infiltrating the human resistance, but so he doesn't know he's doing. They're it. They're so sophisticated now that they can do that, like program Terminators to think they're humans. That's yeah. mm, that's yeah. a thought. Um, and the best part of the movie, other than some cool giant robots and things, mm-hmm. uh, is Anton Yelchin as Kyle Reese. I got no bad words to say about Anton Yelchin yeah. as calories. That was good casting. Mm. He's good in the movie. I, re- I remember some good action, but for the most part, it's kind of a forgettable flick. I remember there's a digital Arnold at the end. Yeah. That we, show, we see the first Terminators like walking off the production line, and they have a young uh, Earl Schwarzenegger, not through like motion capture or de-aging or anything. It's just a digital model. I, th- I think he might have done like a day in like mm. the mocap or whatever like that yeah, to like, oh. get his skin or whatever. But, but maybe, yeah, I think I think they just hired like a bodybuilder with young Arnold's physique and then they just digitized yeah. his face. It, um, it looks okay, you know. It looks it's, fine. We, the technology's gotten yeah. better, but it works yeah. for what it is. He's supposed uh, to look phony anyway. He's a Terminator. But the Terminator had kind of bled so deeply into the pop consciousness. Gener- uh, Generation X and Y started taking over film production, so uh, film 
films became more and more about fan service, which is what led to Terminator Genesis. Uh, oh, that title. Which was... G-E-N-I-S-Y-S. Uh. No. G-N-I-S. Bad Terminator Genesis. Bad. Terminator Genesis. What a... What a strange, stupid idea. Uh, so they tried to just muck with the timeline in all these weird new ways, and they were trying to be really creative, and none of these were good ideas. Well, because none, none of the ideas in Terminator Genesis started from a baseline of the characters. No, it was They started all, about, all from a what-if sci-fi stuff. And it was all using iconography and ideas from the previous movies. There were no new ideas here. They're just sort of remixing everything that we've seen already. So yeah. it's uh, Terminators traveling back in time, but now they're traveling back in time to various different locales throughout the timeline so we arrive in 1984 and Kyle Reese arrives in 1984 to find Sarah Connor and Sarah Connor's there but now she's already the badass that she was in Terminator 2 she's played by Amelia Clark and also old Arnold is there because they sent a a good Terminator back in time to like the 60s when she was 10 and raised her and protected her so there's Arnold versus Arnold I guess that was a thing people wanted to see Kyle is played by Jai Courtney Um, he is not not a great actor. Uh, he was pretty good in that movie Semper Fi earlier this year. He brings nothing to Kyle Reese. Mm-hmm. Amelia Clark is a good actor, but you wouldn't know it from watching oh, this she's, movie. She's terrible in this movie. Um, um, Schwarzenegger's fine. Uh, he does what he needs there, to do. There's a, like, there's a conceit, in, and the, the conceit is that John Connor now might have been replaced by a Terminator himself. Like, in the future, mm-hmm. after he sent Kyle Reese back in time, John Connor was killed by a Terminator, infected with nanites, and now John Connor is the bad guy. And he's the one who, who, and he's the one who goes back in time to start Gen- Genesis, which is also Skynet. Yeah, Skynet was ended up being created by basically the cloud. They mm. had this new online supercomputer thing. All the computers are connected to it, and they're all going to turn into a holographic Matt Smith from Doctor Who. Mm. Boy, is it a lot of dumb. The problem... <laughs> the by problem, the, by the a lot end, of... it's like liquid oh, Terminator germs infected Arnold. I and, know. Oh, God, it's yeah, all kinds of stupid crap. A lot of problems with Gen- I don't hate Genesis the way some people do. It's not mm. like the worst film I've ever seen or anything like that, but it comes from all bad ideas. Mm. None of the action sequences pop. None of them are memorable at all. Um, my biggest problem with Genesis, besides the casting, most of which is quite bad, um, my biggest problem with Genesis is... It can't market itself. And I've written about this before. I call it the Mm. Genesis effect. Where the whole idea of Terminator Genesis is it's supposed to be a surprise. All of the twists in the timeline, and there's two big ones. Mm. There's, we start off with Kyle Reese in the future. They defeat Skynet. Kyle Reese goes back in time. But when he gets there, Sarah Connor is a different Sarah Connor. That's supposed to be a twist. When you read the script, that's supposed to blow your mind. Mm. If you watched it without knowing any fanfare or seeing any trailers, any trailers, because they ruined it everywhere, that should have blown your mind. And then halfway through the movie, they blow your mind again by making John Connor the bad guy. These are supposed to be big-ass twists. Mm. Problem is... You can't market the movie without revealing that stuff. If you don't reveal that stuff, Mm. because it happens, there are twists that happen so early in the movie that there's nothing else to show. (laughs) All you could tell them is it's a remake of Terminator. No Mm. one's going to go, that's not a big selling point. No one's going to go to that. And if they do want to go see a remake of Terminator, and then they get there, and all of a sudden it's not a remake of Terminator, at least half the audience is going to feel screwed. Because that's not what they paid for. The other half might be really excited by all the new stuff. The idea is neat, but you can't market it that way. And I've talked to the screenwriters even, and they're like, listen, we can't think about the marketing when you write it. And I think we're past that now. I think there is a point in these major blockbusters where you have to think about 
What is going to be ruined? <laughs> by by the, the people cutting the trailer. If you have a huge twist, mm-hmm. one third of the way into your movie, that's going to be in the trailers. You need to accept that. Because mm-hmm. otherwise, there's no film. <laughs> right. Like, there's that movie Red Eye, which is a lot the same way. Wes Craven's film Red Eye with Rachel McAdams and Killian Murphy. The first 30 minutes of that movie... It's a romantic comedy. Yeah, yeah, she meets a nice guy at an airport and he seems cool. And then 30 minutes into it, it turns out he's kidnapping her in public, in front of everyone inside this plane. And mm-hmm. she can't tell anybody or he'll kill her dad. Creepy, awesome thing. But mm-hmm. you can't market it as a romantic comedy just to preserve that twist. The twist happens too early. So that's the thing that bugs me about Terminator Genesis. Like, even from the word go, Mm. it was a bad idea. So the twists are ruined by the trailers. Mm. And then once you see it, you're waiting for the movie to catch up. And by the time the movie finally does catch up, it's done. (laughs) There's nothing left. And, uh... The fan service, however, just kept rolling forward. Terminator Genesis was a hit overseas, but it was not loved here in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't such a hit um, overseas that they decided to keep going the, with the, that There part was, of the, there was that an, idea. an idea that they were going to keep on making films like after Genesis and like in that particular version of the timeline. Mm-hmm. But that kind of fell apart. And uh, so somebody came in and said, why don't we do one of those interquel soft reboots where we ignored the sequels we don't like. Well, and it was actually so, James Cameron. James mm. Cameron finally came back on the franchise. The revi- the rights reverted back to him. Uh-huh. So they brought him back on board and, to do uh, Terminator Dark Fate. And now they've remade Terminator 2 again. Uh, <laughs> it's rather a, fitting, a, really. All, all the exact same stuff, just with a new uh, uh, rejiggering of the characters. So yeah, uh, we have no Judgment Day, but a new Judgment Day. And... Uh, No day but today. And in this new Judgment Day, for some reason, this new Skynet, which was called um, Legion, Legion, uh, also thought to develop time-traveling Terminators. Whatever. Hey, listen, it's all I guess sick. That's all, all inevitable. We inevitable. all keep making the same mistakes. That's the that's the whole uh, premise but, of Terminator. Uh, an evil Terminator now is like liquid with a Terminator inside, so it's two Terminators in one. And uh, neat idea. Sure, why not? It's fine with a it. Good way to improve it. And they all, and they made it all black, so it looks cool now. Yeah. Uh, that's the evil Terminator. The protector is played by Mackenzie Davis. Davis. I must say Mackenzie Phillips. <laughs> Mackenzie Davis, uh, uh, who's who's great. I like her a lot. I like um, that she's an actual cyborg. Yeah, she they, she has she's a human with a robot skeleton and can move real fast, but also her metabolism sucks, so she wears out fast. Which makes sense. Like mm. they've always used to call the Terminator a cyborg, but I'm like, no, it's a robot with human skin. Mm. The human skin can't survive without the robot. Yeah, and the, like, the uh, Mackenzie Davis is actually a cyborg. She's a human with robot parts. Totally different uh, thing. Uh, Natalia Reyes plays the woman they have to protect, and. Uh, then and we're off and running. There's big chase, and we're off and running. Uh, and there's no big surprises, or wit, or cleverness, or twists, or reveals, or any kind of riff on the material at all. We're playing it 100% safe. There's some exciting action in a boring sort of way. <laughs> the story is told efficiently in a boring sort of way. And then it's revealed that Arnold is also there. Yeah. I don't want to ruin the, the Arnold reveal, like how they handle it this time. Yeah. I will say I got some real chuckles at Arnold this time. Uh, uh, what Arnold has there, – there's a, a bit in Genesis where um, there's a lot of like time hopping going on in, in Terminator 5. Uh, they go that, back and forth they in go, time. Yeah, they go back and forth in time. Like they've, they've built a time machine in the sewers and another really dumb idea. Uh, and they have to say, okay, we're going to go forward in time, like, 30 years. You're going to hang out, okay, Terminator? And it's like, yeah, I'm a robot. I'll just stay here. Yeah. And they they jump forward in time, and Arnold now looks like old Arnold in the future of that timeline. 
And it's revealed like he's just sort of like been working construction for the last 30 years. <laughs> I want to see a movie just about that period of a Terminator just sort of hanging out for 30 years working on houses and stuff. Right. And we get a little hint of that mm. here in Dark mm. Fate. I really, It's actually – I think it's the best part of the movie. <laughs> it's really fun. Mm. Um, I, I disagree with you on this movie. All right. I do. Um, I do think it's I do think it's repetitive and cyclical. I think that's baked into the Terminator franchise. I think that's – like asking, well, here, I think it's like here, asking Jason the, not to kill a bunch of teenagers. Well, here, like this is what the, we do. Here's the problem: the Terminator idea is so simple. You watch the Terminator. Okay, that's a simple idea. A robot from the future tries to kill you. Somebody else from the future tries to protect you. Period. Done. Yeah. Didn't need a sequel. It got one, which is more or less a remake. Yeah. So we did it again with a bigger budget. Fine. It worked. the The idea behind Terminator isn't something that lends itself to a franchise. I actually agree they've, with that. They've been milking this thing way too hard. We don't need more and more sequels. Exploring this mythos because it's a time travel story. It doesn't make sense. No, no, no. I'm Don't actually, explore the Terminator mythos. I'm actually 100% with you on this. Mm. I, I actually do. Th- I was thinking about, you know, why people are burned on Terminator. And I think mm. part of it is because the last few sequels, the least the last two sequels sucked. It's mm. arguably three sucked. I'm in the minority. I think it's okay. But like, it's two, four, and five sucked. <laughs> no arguments there. Mm. Sucked. Um, but I also think that there's just only so much connection a lot of mainstream audiences have to Terminator. They enjoy the first two. Mm. Maybe they like that TV series they did, which I really didn't watch enough of to talk yeah. about it. I know it has its fans. Um, the TV series, which I think... Another timeline. Yeah. It's, God, it's, it's, it's another one that ignores everything else. I think mm. it might include... No, it doesn't include three. But it's got Lena Headey. They, and, they all uh, include two. Two is yeah. the popular one. One and two. They're all, they're all fine. But then mm. everything else is ignored. Um, but, uh, no, I agree. I think the premise is so rigidly codified by the structure of Terminator 1 mm. that doing it too often reveals how repetitive it is. And when you try to mess with the formula, people get mad because you messed with the formula. And now you're stuck. Mm. You either are stuck in a repetitive formula or you mess with the formula and people are mad that you changed something. Terminator is not the kind of movie that was born to have a good franchise. It probably should have stopped it, too. However, I think 6 is pretty damn good. All right. Uh, for one thing, uh, I like the new cast. I like the old cast, actually, as well. Mm. Schwarzenegger's funny. Linda Hamilton is great. Um, I like uh, Natalia Reyes. I think she's uh, got a character who doesn't really pop until like the last half, but then you realize that they planted seeds for mm-hmm. how she was going to evolve earlier in the film. And I think that really works. I like Mackenzie Davis for a long time. I thought she didn't have an arc. And then again, you find a little bit more about her and you mm-hmm. realize there was more to her <clears throat> than that. And she plays it really, really well. There's a great bit uh, right at the beginning where she's trying to protect Natalia Reyes and her brother uh, mm-hmm. from the Terminator slash Terminators. And, um, Normally, this would be the part in the movie where, like, Matt Damon or Arnold Schwarzenegger would be like, you know, everything's going to be okay. You know, just run or whatever like that. And Mackenzie Davis just says, when they start to kill me, run. (laughs) And I'm like, oh, my God, I want you to protect me so bad. Like, you were willing to put that much on the line right away, first scene? Holy shit. Like, I really dig her, and I think she's got a big career as an action star if she wants one. The thing I really connected to with this movie, though, um, I mean, again, it tells the same story. I think it tells it well. Mm. Um... How tired you are of it is up to you, but I'm, I wasn't. I was happy to see it one more time. Um, the thing I really like about this one is that it treats the present day as a dystopia we would have tried to avoid in the 80s. And what you realize what, what, is what that... Do you, what do you mean by well, that? Like, well, like, when you think about, like, 
when they go back in, in time in Terminator 1, mm. it's the 80s. There's consumerism and parties and clubbing and mm. whatever, just normal shit. Go back in time to the 90s. There's arcades and, <laughs> you know, she's in a mental institution, but that fits the plot. And then they're, they're on the... said he was going to the Galleria. The Galleria? <laughs> Regardless, mm. it's, all, it's all normal. This is the first, like, kind of big-budget blockbuster that takes the dystopian world in which we live and treats it as a horrifying nightmare. Like, well, it, imagine, imagine if you will, mm-hmm. someone comes back in time from the future and says, okay, there's this horrible future we have to prevent. There are concentration camps at the American border. There are drones in the sky that are hunting people that are controlled yeah. by people really, really far away and could kill you if they really wanted to. Uh, there are people who are trying to control women's bodies. All these like horrible things. Mm. That's the backdrop for Terminator uh, uh, Dark Fate. There's an entire extended sequence that takes place at one of the concentration camps on the border. Mm. It's not even like pushing it down your throat or everything. It's just there. Mm. That's just what it's like. And that really puts this in a more political uh, uh, mindset than I think any of them have since the first one. And even then, it was, it was a little stretchy. Like, this one kind of shows how the Terminator can be relevant and how really important it is to change the future now, because we're already at a tipping point. And I think that's all in there. And I think it's really, even just a little bit when um, Mackenzie Davis is, like, fighting her way through the through the camp, and she's just like, where are the prisoners? And there's one person who just meekly says, they're detainees. Where are the prisoners? <laughs> like, it just puts it all into sharp relief, and it just says, you know, listen, we're already fighting these dystopian wars yeah. right now and we're not even really thinking about it and putting it in the Terminator context that was really really bold then on top of that the action's really cool uh, that's really funny like I was surprised at how how funny I thought the whole movie was and mm. I, don't know, I just thought it was a cool movie right. I really it, it functioned it, it, to me it, it is a cool movie and that's fine but that's all it is there's not a lot of I apart you said that you know, it has a sort of political underpinning I think the filmmakers aren't putting a lot of thought into that. They, they, they're. You think it was an accident? I, I think it was incidental. You think it was an incidental mm. that the big centerpiece in this movie was well, at a at a place where they p- treat people like chattel, much mm. like the Terminators are going to in the future. You uh, think that's a coincidence? I, I, I it, it doesn't play. It doesn't play that well. Uh, it because it's it because it's not the centerpiece of the movie. It's just another action well, I mean, set piece. It's literally the center throughout of the movie. Well, yeah, I suppose that, so. that was my point. Like the the big action sequences. There's a, a action sequence on a highway. That's like the big effects one that you see in the previews. And then there's, cool. a, there's another uh, midair plane crash where they both keep on flying. That's all really implausible and so cool. It's straight out of like a Fast and Furious movie. Like, it's so implausible. Yeah, it really feels like at the end of Fast. Um, I, I, I did like the climax. I liked that, that action sequence on the highway. Uh, yeah, I think everything else just sort of chugs along way too efficiently. It, it I was waiting to see who wrote this thing, like and it turns out like James Ca- James Cameron and five other people had to get together to essentially write the same screenplay as Terminator Two. I thought that was pretty ironic. Uh, and and then I, yeah. yeah, it has the same kind of problem, the same fridge failings. You get to the fridge and you think, wait a minute, how did this and the time travel didn't how did that Terminator get there and why was this Terminator over here and when did that Terminator come from in the mm-hmm. first timeline and all of that stuff doesn't make any sense no, whatsoever. No, it doesn't make any sense. I'll give you that. Uh, and and it's it's a very familiar kind of disappointment. See, I wasn't disappointed. Right. I was I was very satisfied well, with I it. Say- I don't expect mm. every sequel to blow me a fucking way. Is mm. it as good as Terminator 1 and 2? No. 
Is it the third best? Yeah. No. And I don't think that's standing with faint praise. I think that's it's a comfortably third best. This was the only if we had never had any of the other ones, and then we just waited, and then we had wants us to believe. But, but like, yeah. but like, let's let's seriously let's throw yeah. it out there. If there had never been any other ones, and we just had Dark Fate, mm. twenty nine years later, I think we'd be really happy with this. Mm. I think this is this is a good return to form for the franchise. It bums me out. Like, I I, appre- I understand it was never going to do Terminator two numbers, at least for just for inflation. It's never going to change. Look, the look world. at Jurassic World. Well, you know what I mean. But yeah. Terminator is in more of a niche audience. It's R rated. Mm-hmm. Uh, it hasn't had sort of that legacy of family friendly mm-hmm. awe yeah. that comes from it. Um, I think it's a different beast. And I think uh, if the other failed Terminator movies have taught us anything, it's that it's not something that really is kind of designed to be a perennial hit. Yeah. It probably was designed to die. You know, if, we would, if it had ended with Terminator, we never had any other Terminators. It'd still be fine. It would still be fine. Like, the history of visual effects might be slightly different because Terminator 2 was such a game changer. But yeah. we would have figured it out anyway. People were still making Jurassic Park and shit. Um, but, uh, yeah. I, I will say this. If this is the last Terminator we get, if after this Hollywood's just like, well, we tried. Fuck it. And then we just don't do <laughs> anymore. And, like, eventually someone tries to do another TV series mm. 10 years down the line or whatever. But, like, but basically, like, it's dead now. Yeah. I'm fine with that. We really need to start letting franchises die a natural death once yeah. in a while. Well, once in a while. Some I, of them can last. Some of I them would, are designed to last. Some of them are not. I'll say more frequently than not. Uh, there, there's this. I, I have addressed this before. This sort of mentality from the marketing gurus in, in Hollywood that everything needs to have sort of a permanent toehold in the consciousness. Yeah. We have to make a Terminator film every X number of years because Terminator has to stay part of the conversation forever. Uh, we have to have now. We have to have a new Jurassic World film every couple of years. We have to have an Alien film every couple of years. We have to have five or six Avengers films every year. Um, yeah. We we just have to keep all of these things going rather than telling a story yeah. that is important to us and ends in a satisfying way. And there's if, something really almost self-critical about it. It's like, mm-hmm. listen, we have to keep making Terminator movies because we have nothing else. We have no yeah. other ideas. Like that, we that, can't build something from scratch anymore. We don't know how. Yeah, uh, th- and that, that's been a big complaint of mine about the Avengers movies. Yeah, it's like why, why don't you do something really daring? You know, have Captain America like lose an arm, sacrificing something. It's like, oh well, we can't take off an arm. Well, why not? Bucky lost an arm. Why not? Why not? Well, we need to set it up for a sequel. Why? Not. I'm not setting up a sequel. I'm just watching a movie. I want to have a really satisfying, shocking thing happen in. Mm-hmm. And you're. And I can tell that you're shying away from the bigger, daring ideas because you have to stay safe enough to continue the series going indefinitely. Right. That's not good for cinema. <laughs> no, I think there's a place for it. It just probably shouldn't dominate. Yeah, that's well, that's, that's all we're doing right now. No, I really don't think it is though. I think I think there's a handful in, in of franchises terms of, like the big mainstream action stuff. But yeah. there's only so much, of, and, and they take up a lot of space because they're advertised the most and they're publicized the most, and we talk about them the most. But if you just look at the numbers, the actual number of films that this like actually relates to, mm-hmm. it's pretty small overall. Only like a couple dozen films a year out of the hundreds yeah. that are released. The many hundreds, like eight hundred, are released in theaters every single year. Uh, most of them don't make it to every multiplex, but they're out there. Mm-hmm. So we're looking, you know, your your Star Warses, your Marvels, your DCs, your James Bonds, your to a lesser extent your Star Treks. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's only I don't know, 10 or 12 major franchises that are really operating on that level. They just take up a lot of space. Yeah. And we just really need to 
let the ones that aren't actually doing anything right now just go away. <laughs> just let it let them. A lot of franchises by. have ended. And there's a reason you can't think of any if you're having mm. trouble. It's because they ended. <laughs> they're, they're, they don't make Francis the Talking Mule or mm. Billy Jack anymore. Those are big franchises. They're big, really big. Mm. No one talks about it anymore. Billy Why? Because they're done. Billy Jack was a huge hit. <laughs> huge! My God. Just wait until they bring back like Billy Jack 2040. <laughs> <laughs> In the year 2525, will there be any Billy Jackson alive? Francis the Talking M U L E. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, we'll, we'll give it a hand up, but clearly I like Terminator uh, Dark Fate a lot more than you did. Let's yeah. move on. There's another new film, another big, expensive film that's a part of a grand <laughs> tradition, and you've seen it all before. The director's made a whole bunch of these. Ah, the Irishman. Uh, ag, the Irishman. The only critic to introduce it that way. Um, <laughs> now, Martin Scorsese has a new film called uh, The Irishman. Uh, well, it's it's technically it's called I Heard You Paint Houses, but I think somebody convinced him along the way that, uh, why don't you call it The Irishman? Okay. This is so fucking weird. When you watch The Irishman, whether you see it in a theater, which Mm. if you can, do, Mm. but eventually it'll be on Netflix. When you see it there, the title card doesn't say The Irishman. No, it says, I Heard You Paint Houses. That was the original title of the book it's based on. The title Mm. makes a lot of sense in context with the movie, which I guess is why they changed it, because it doesn't offhand. Mm. Um, They say The Irishman at the end, which I guess is Scorsese going, fine, Mm. whatever. Uh, but, uh, yeah, it's called The Hurdy Paint Houses because, uh, according to the film, and I had vaguely heard this before, but this is the first movie to really talk about it in detail, a house painter is a mafia term for a hitman because yeah, he'll, they, paint, he'll paint the wall with your blood. I, I had heard that term before. Yeah. Uh, and it's about Frank Sheeran, uh, who, late in his life, confessed to killing Jimmy Hoffa. Yeah. Jimmy Hoffa, and I really do appreciate that the makers of The Irishman, you know, Steve Zalian wrote the script, Martin mm-hmm. Scorsese, everybody, uh, they understand that Hoffa is an incredibly important figure in 20th century America, period. Mm. Uh, but a lot of modern generations know him vaguely at best and only because yeah, he they, disappeared. They, yeah, they even say, you you younger kids watching, the narrator says, you younger kids watching probably only know that Jimmy Hoffa disappeared. But he was a superstar. Yeah. He was uh, a politician. Uh, he was in with the Teamsters Union. That he is led say, the Teamsters Union. He led the Teamsters Union, yeah. uh, which is the union of truckers that was also – Unbelievably corrupt and run by mob money, and he was—he had his hands on all those pies, and he was a really kind of a blowhard in the movie. He's played by Al Pacino. Frank Sheeran is played by De Niro. Uh, why? Look, it's called The Irishman. Liam Neeson is right there. In fact, Liam Neeson has been in two Scorsese movies before this. Why can't he just be in this one? De Niro is part Irish, but it's weird. It's that weird he's, that and, he's and, playing the Irishman. Um, it's the, not you'd think. It's the story of his whole life from when he was a young man uh, shortly after World War II up until his death, which was pretty recent. Uh, well, we don't see him die, but we but get to see just about. All, all the way like up until like a few days before his death. So we get to see his entire life using special effects. We kind of de-age De Niro a little bit. He's his own age throughout most of it. We also de-age uh, Joe Pesci, who's mm. in it as well after a really long hiatus from cinema. And let me tell you something. 
Joe Pesci's freaking great in this movie. Joe Pesci has not lost a step. <laughs> Joe Pesci didn't. I don't know if he kept going to acting classes in the middle or something. He was fresh. Yeah, Joe Pesci. A, if Joe Pesci doesn't get an Oscar nomination for this. I will be very surprised. Yeah, he's he, great. In he's this. really, really great in this. He he plays sort of like the low level mob boss that Frank Sheeran ends up sort of hooking up with to get in and into the biz. Uh-huh. Uh, we've seen the cor- the sort of rise and success of the gangster before from Scorsese and from other movies about how kind of exhilarating it is to get involved in this world of crime and the type of person like non-caring amoral personality that it takes to excel in something like that yeah uh you just have to sort of be focused on the job uh be efficient about it and not have any sort of conscience whatsoever these are evil men but they're presented very sympathetically that's the talent of scorsese well scorsese Uh, grew up around mm-hmm. these people. He grew up yeah, so, in New York City. So these, he knew a lot of people in these yeah. positions, or at least or at least in the orbit of mm-hmm. them. So he so, like, doesn't warn see... family men, but yeah. occasionally they'd like drag a grocer out into the street and beat them up and he didn't know why. And it's really worth noting when you look at the mm-hmm. the gangster movies of Martin Scorsese. And depending on how loosely you define that, there's about eight of them. Mm-hmm. It's only about it's less than half of his filmography. Do not ever claim he only makes <laughs> gangster movies. Uh, but when you look at the 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 core gangster movies that he when you look at uh, Mean Streets, mm. he did in the early 70s, it was his third film. Uh, Goodfellas, arguably his best film. I would make that argument. Mm, okay. Uh, I, I think there's a comfortable argument, but whatever. Mm. It's an amazing motion picture. Uh, Casino, which is really fucking phenomenal, and I mm. just rewatched it. It's better than I remembered. It is so <laughs> goddamn good. Um, it's a good one. It's and good one. Uh, And now The Irishman. Mm. These are not power fantasies these are no. catholic guilt parables <laughs> that's that's for sure these are all catholic, catholic guilt is the one theme that kind of runs through all of scorsese's work yeah. except for maybe kundun uh but uh <laughs> probably not so <laughs> which is not about so Christi- christianity at all <laughs> uh but uh yeah these are guys who are ostensibly they're, catholics they're ostensibly mm. god-fearing uh, men who go to church and, and all this kind of stuff, and he had to do terrible things. And some of them wrestle with this, some of them don't. Most and of them don't. Most of them, in mm-hmm. fact, I think I can't think of a single one who like really does. Uh, most of them end extremely unhappily. Mm-hmm. Either they are left with nothing and they're empty shells of human beings, or they're dead under horrible, violent circumstances. Yeah, um, the best, like the only one who comes out of it kind of okay is Robert De Niro at the end of Casino, but even he's lost everything. Yeah, and uh, the Irishman takes us through that exhilarating rise, that kind of sympathetic uh, middle ground where they're all expected to die. Uh, and then continues to follow them into old age. Ed Sheeran died a very old man, yeah. uh, having done all of these horrible things. And I love Scorsese's insight as an older filmmaker. Yeah. In, it's, it's that last bit, actually, that really makes The Irishman important. Yeah, because the first two uh, thirds or so, it's good, mm-hmm. but it also isn't like super remarkable. It, it doesn't really ro- stand I, out. I, the film is three and a half hours long. I think it's pretty expertly paced, even though it's... I think it is a little too long. There's a portion in the middle that involves Jimmy Hoffa and sort of the movement of all of the characters that is about 30 minutes of film that just could have been done in a conversation. It's like, just get on with it. I, they, yeah, I oh agree. I God. think there's a chunk it's, in the it, middle we it, could lose. Yeah. But, um, it's just dragging their feet. But I do appreciate that the film slowed down as the characters themselves slowed down. Yeah. I was looking at this. Like, it opened, like, De Niro narrates this movie from mm-hmm. a wheelchair, like, in an old folks' home. Oh. And he's got this kind of narrative style that sounds like 
when you're talking to a really, really old guy who's got nothing but time on his hands. <laughs> it just kind of meanders a little and, bit. And, like, it's not, uh, I'm not saying he's lost a step or anything like that. It's just he's not really concerned about entertaining you. He's just trying to get it all out. Mm. And after a while, and I mean this in a good way, this is going to sound like an insult. Mm. The Irishman is kind of Martin Scorsese's version of Abraham Sim- Simpson's The Important Thing is That I Had an Onion on My Belt, which was the style at the time. Uh, we were taking the ferry down to Shelbyville. Back then, nickels had bees on them. <laughs> Give me two bees for a quarter. Anyway, uh, that's kind of what The Irishman is. It's a bit mm-hmm. meandering, but it's meandering because it's how an old man would look at his life. Uh-huh. Um, it's got all the justifications for everything that he's done. He refuses to take responsibility for the bad things that he's done. Mm. Um, and it ends just really sadly and pathetically as mm-hmm. well it should. This is not a fun movie. This is a depressing well, drama, and I think de- at its best, it confronts that. It's a depressing drama, but because it's Scorsese, who, who is just as enervating a filmmaking filmmaker as he's always been. Yeah, real energetic. Uh, it, it's it's not a downbeat or depressing uh, to watch. Um, a little bit towards the end. Something like Silence, that's a really maudlin film, uh, but... The Irishman, like I'm thinking of, also like The Wolf of Wall Street. The Wolf of Wall Street is just energetic all the way through. Oh my it's God, he's got more like verve in that movie than most filmmakers ever they're, will. They're filmmakers a quarter his age that couldn't muster that much energy. Uh, and this one, I think he brings that same sort of energy. But yeah, he's very good about modulating it and, and slowing it down when it needs to be slowed down. But I don't think it's a bummer. Like, you'll leave kind of sad. It has a depressing ending, and it's kind of nihilistic at the end of the day. But Scorsese is bringing a lot of humanity and energy to it, as he always does. Yeah, fair enough. Mm. I do think it's it's not as energetic as some mm. of those other movies you talked about, even mm. Silence in a way. Mm. I think it's a, a a bit more reserved okay. in a lot of respects. Um, I, the thing that was actually like... This is the first... No, this is the third... Okay, hold on. Let me re- let me re- no, let me rephrase. Let me rephrase. Let me rephrase. I was going to put this in like two different ways. All right. This is the third movie that I can think of mm-hmm. that has Pacino and De Niro on screen together. There's mm-hmm. uh, The Heat. I'm sorry, yeah, just Heat. Just Heat. Uh, the Heat is a Burt Reynolds movie. Uh, it's Righteous Kill. Uh, Righteous Kill, which sucks. <laughs> I haven't seen it's it. Such I've a bad. It's quite bad. Yeah, how did you get them for that? That's so weird. <laughs> like both of them really needed a paycheck that month. Fifty Cent act circles around them in that movie. <laughs> wow. Um, and that one was really disappointing because Heat. You know, they only really have like one scene together. It's a great scene. Hmm. It's a fantastic scene. They're acting their aunt, their pants off. But um, Righteous Kill. It's like the material is just so beneath them. It's like not good material. So, mm-hmm. so here we have Robert De Niro and Al Pacino. And Pacino is playing Hoffa. Mm. And, he's, and he's in his big boy mode. So yeah. he's like really he's playing about, ha- hamming it up like crazy. Hoffa was a big personality. Mm. And they're not afraid to confront that. And I was a little disappointed by how unmeaty their scenes were together. But mm. that's more of an expectation of, ah, oh, finally a movie that puts them together for long periods of time and mm. it's a good movie. And there's something about how quiet De Niro is in this film and how he's not meeting Pacino, like halfway, mm. Mm. Um, that makes their scenes f- f- 
I don't, I, they fall a little flat for me, but I think that's my fault for well, having big expectations of these I, big I, actors. I, the, the relationship between the characters is the interesting thing, and it's the focus of the thing. And Hoffa was a big, domineering character. Uh, Frank Sheeran was just a, a gopher. He was just a, a working guy. He you know, had a few bigger ambitions, but yeah, he didn't have a big personality. So I think... Uh, the imbalance of character was appropriate for all of the scenes they were in together. Fair enough. Like I said, it's my fault. It's my fault for having expectations. Petty things that they bicker about. There is a little bit... uh, Well, it's actually not in there, and I kind of wish that there had been a little bit of queer subtext between the two characters. Yeah, it looks like they're going there for a scene, and then they never For one scene, and and if they had, it would have explained a lot about their relationship, but they actually didn't do it. So uh, it's just something I'll have to imagine was there. Yeah. Um, no, uh, but, this, uh, this is why the, I say anticipation is the death of criticism yeah. because I think, I'm asking the movie to meet up yeah. with something it wasn't going to do. Well, the whole point is that all of these gangster guys who get away with it for years and all, some of them die of, of old age, some some of them in prison, most, some of them most not. Don't. Most, most, most don't. But, There's actually yeah. a running gag throughout this movie where we'll meet new characters and they'll tell you, like, on a screen, they'll tell you their name yeah. and they'll tell you when they died and what they died of. And everyone you meet died really violently. Really violently, like a 1980 shot twice in the face yeah like it's like but it's like hey how you doing shot twice in the face in his driveway in front of his wife and kids <laughs> holy shit yeah so a lot of these people died horribly so they if you survive uh you can get away with it and i think the point is these are not masterminds who think this stuff out no. They're not constructing this organized crime as if that's the end of all of this. They're just sort of staggering through corrupt human beings trying to get as much money as possible without any moral qualms whatsoever. And they're rich and powerful Mm. enough that they just get away with it. I actually love when we finally do see the death of Jimmy Hoffa Mm. that has been turned into this urban legend. Where could he be? Mm. Um, I'm not going to tell you. I'm not going to tell you what happens, but like it's, jokes about it on The Simpsons. Yeah, yeah I'm not going to tell you what happens, but um, it's a little mundane, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like it's not. They were not trying to make Jimmy Hoffa an urban legend because he disappeared. They just wanted him dead, and they happened to do a really good job of it, and no one ever found out. Okay, <laughs> it's not complicated. Mm. It's, I actually really like that. Um, I mean, I don't because it's real and it's sad. And, you know, that shouldn't happen. But you know what I mean, like cinematically. Yeah. It's very effective. Uh, the Irishman is a really, really excellent <clears throat> film. Um, it's nowhere near my favorite Scorsese film. Okay. Um, I don't put it towards the upper echelon even of his gangster movies. <laughs> um, I would put uh, Mean Streets and Goodfellas and The Departed ahead of this. Uh, it's really excellent. And I think if you want to watch one, like a, a great unofficial Scorsese trilogy, watch the movie he made about gangsters as a young man, mm-hmm. Mean Streets. Then watch the movie he made about gangsters as a middle-aged man, Goodfellas. And then watch the movie he made about gangsters as an old man, The Irishman. (laughs) I know it feels like Casino should fit in there. Trust me, it really doesn't. It's a totally different kind of film. Watch those three and you'll get this complete perspective on the life of organized crime. That is incredibly illuminating. And maybe the last chapter isn't the best part, but it's great. Well, it's, a, it's a fitting chapter, and I think it, it really hammers home how Scorsese feels about these people. Yeah. He hates these people. They, he, they're pathetic. Like, they're, they're part of his life, but he, uh, he, his ultimate argument is that these people have no character whatsoever. And even though the movies make them up to be these kind of mythic, fun characters, you know, we think of Pesci and Goodfellas, you know, how, how am I funny? How am I funny to you? Oh um, that's just a, a child, that's a scene of him being childish. Yeah. 
He's no, yeah, he's a petulant mm. little baby man. Yeah, yeah. Th- these people are all petulant little babies. You know, the Ray Liotta character is like, oh, I always wanted to be a gangster like these cool guys, but it, he's you narrating grown over, the fuck up. He's narrating over a scene where they're knifing a guy in a trunk. Like these are horrible people who have no <laughs> ideas, no characters, and no morals. I love the scene in The Irishman mm. where uh, uh, De Niro's character has to be a gopher. Uh, between Al Pacino and the mafia bosses. Mm. And he talks to, to Hoffa, and Hoffa's just like, you go tell them that. You go tell them that. And he goes to tell them that, and it's like, okay, well, now you tell them this. And I'm like, this goes on. Yeah. It goes back and forth like five <laughs> times. And you realize that they're just children yeah. playing a game of telephone, and they could just talk, mm. and this could be over now, but they're not because they're immature. Mm. He's, yeah, you're right. He looks down on these people. I think yeah. he sees them as human beings, but he has no respect for them. Yeah, yeah, he's uh, he's he's a very masterful filmmaker. He makes good yeah. movies. That's what he's really quite good. He makes the best films. He yeah. makes the best films. There's a genuine argument to be made that he's the great American filmmaker. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I will not fight now, that. Uh, it might not be my pick, but he's right up there. Uh, Scorsese is often criticized for underwriting his female characters. This isn't true. He actually well, watch, well, that well, can it, be true. He, he tends to make movies about men. His, most yeah. of his films are about male characters, but Watch Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore or Age of Innocence or many of the films that have really interesting female characters. Uh, Boscar Bertha is good, a bit of a mess, but uh, it, it's Even Goodfellas has Lorraine Bracco, and she's great in that movie. Uh, Sharon um, Stone is fucking... Yeah, performance of a know, lifetime in Casino. She's really great in Casino. So yeah. they tend to play supporting characters, yes. Yeah. Uh, and... You will notice the absence of women in The Irishman, but I think that's less Scorsese and more the world he's choosing to examine, which are run by dumb men. Yeah. I think uh, if he made films about women, uh, we'd see that they're not acting like dumb, petulant children, because that's the (laughs) the purview of the male world he's chosen to enter. Perhaps. Um, But listen, Mm. you know, you can criticize his work. Uh, you can criticize his body of work. Mm. Um, he chose the films that he chose. He made those films really, really well. Um, I don't know if he's making more. I hope he's making more. If this was his last film, I'd get it, but I don't think it is. I think he's going to keep oh, working until no, the day he no, dies because yeah. he's that kind of guy. Uh, but he's, uh, anyway. He's not one of those filmmakers who teases his retirement. Oh, I'm going to make three more. No. It. No, he's, he's, he's going to keep shooting. He's going to keep shooting until he can't anymore. I'll bet you anything. Uh, let's move on. Thelma, Thelma, wake up. I got another idea. It's Marty, you're 120. No, I got a good idea. <laughs> Put his head in a jar like Futurama. He's still directing. <laughs> oh, that'd be cool. Uh, anyway, let's move on. Uh, so we got a few more films, uh, three that only I've seen and right. one that only you've seen. Yeah. So I guess I'll start with one of mine. Let's go for Should it. I talk with, about Arctic Dogs or Earthquake Bird? Tell me Earthquake Bird, because I don't even know what the hell that is. Earthquake Bird <laughs> is a new mystery film. This is not film. something I had heard of until you mentioned it. It is having an Oscar qualifying run before it ends up going to Netflix. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is a new film starring Alicia Vikander. Okay. Uh, who is a really excellent actor, as you may well know. She won an Academy Award for The Danish Girl. She's very good or, in The Danish Girl. Or rather, she won an Academy Award for Ex Machina, but she wasn't nominated for Ex Machina, so they <laughs> gave it to her for The Danish Girl. She's also good in The Danish Girl, but I think she was given an award for an entire year. Ex Machina uh, is so damn so good. Fucking good. Uh, but she's great, and I'm mm. a big, big fan. Uh, she plays an American woman living in Tokyo in 1989, and she's working as a translator. And in one of the very few moments of self-awareness in this film, uh, we see that she's her job is she's currently working on the subtitles for Black Rain, starring Michael Douglas. <laughs> okay. Um, which sets you up for a kind of movie we're not about to see. Uh, she has a friend uh, who is played by, I'm going to butcher her name, and I apologize, mm. Riley Keogh? Kyog, I think. Kyog? Yeah. Riley Kyog. 
like I like Riley. Keogh. I like Riley Keogh a lot. Um, the movie doesn't do her any favors, but she's a good actor. And um, and uh, yeah, so she is. Uh, Lisa Vikander is living in Tokyo, mm-hmm. and her friend, played by Riley Keogh, uh, is missing. Okay. And at the beginning of the film, they find a body part in the river that they think might be hers. Okay. So the police, having, I guess, not spoken to Alicia Vikander's character yet, pick her up and they interrogate her uh, about the film. And then we see what happened before that day in a flashback. And I would like to say right off the bat that the storytelling in this movie is so vague that it took me about 20 minutes to realize we were in flashback and that the movie just (laughs) didn't continue and show us stuff that happened after she was interviewed by the cops. Mm. It is not clear. And that is a bad way to begin a movie. Uh, The plot is basically she meets a Japanese photographer played by Naoki Kobayashi, Mm. an actor I'm not super familiar with, but he's quite good. And they start a dispassionate... A relationship full of big red flags, where he most spends most of his time taking pictures of her dispassionately, uh, ignoring her uh, advances towards intimacy, and then when she starts hanging out with this new American woman, who, unlike Alicia Vikander, doesn't speak Japanese, uh, she kind of gloms onto them and becomes a third wheel, and it's really, really clear that uh, they're going to have an affair and leave Alicia Vikander in the dust. Okay. That's most of the movie. I'm bored so far. What else is that? The the idea that Riley Keogh's character Hmm. is going to die vanishes from the film for so long. There's not this loom of death. It's not like constantly reminding us, and she's not long for this world. Or she's going to go missing. Whatever. Whatever happens to her. Hmm. There's the threat vanishes. And what we're stuck with is this really boring romance God. it's not sexy mm-hmm. it's not romantic it's not compelling in a soap operatic way it's not tragic in that really nuanced character study way because they won't let us inside Alicia Vikander's mind because they want to keep her alive as a potential suspect so we can't just really get to know her really well mm-hmm. so everyone's just sort of stuck there and it's boring it's, and then when it, it comes, it. Yeah, and then when like, it comes together, describing. when it comes together at the end, it's really obvious. Boring. <laughs> I don't know what else to say about it. like it's it's doesn't it doesn't work. It's edited confusingly, which is the kind of thing I don't have to say very often because mm-hmm. baseline decent editing you're not, well, is you're not pretty gonna, standard. You're not going to notice just competent editing. Yeah, that's the thing. We don't need to. If if I don't mention the editing, that means the editing was great. <laughs> all right. If I mention the editing is good enough to compliment on, that means it's all time great. But if I don't mention the editing, it means the editing's fine. If I mention the editing, it's usually because the editing sucks. The editing sucks. Uh, The storyline is vapid. It raises a lot of questions about the way that Westerners view Japanese culture. Mm -hmm. That it has no interest in exploring. There's like a part where she's talking to these Japanese detectives and they don't realize that she speaks English. So she surprises them. She speaks Japanese. Mm -hmm. So she surprises them with that. I've seen that scene. I like it. Yeah, it's fine. No, it's fine. There's nothing wrong with it. Uh, But there's a bit where... They're like, um, what did they say? Uh, 
Oh, yeah. Uh, they say, you're not like Japanese women. And Alicia Vikander, like, immediately snaps back, yes, I am. And I'm like, okay, that's a loaded statement. What does that mean? <laughs> like, what are you... Is it important to you to be like that? We've seen you, like, dress in a kimono at one point and mm. actually scare somebody in a point that's like, oh, no, white woman in kimono. And it's hilarious, like, how mm. weird that scene is. And it's totally unintentional, too. Um, but, like, it really doesn't dig deep into what is significant about telling the story in Japan with these white women. Mm. What does that mean? What does that signify? I'm, I'm is it fetishistic in some way? Well, because there is an erotic thriller element. Butterfly here, yeah, there's but... like an erotic thriller element here mm. where they're both sort of fetishizing the culture and particularly mm. at least one man in the culture. But there's nothing to say about it. Mm. Some of the plot points are stupid. Duh. There's a part where like they're hiking and Lisa Vikander doesn't feel well. Not for nothing. Like, it doesn't say, like, you know, someone poisoned her or anything like that. She just starts feeling sick. So what happens is they lay her down on the mountain, and then they start taking pictures of each other. Well, she's, like, lying down sick, possibly dying. And then she passes out, and when she wakes up, they're gone. They just left her there. And when, she, and when she finds them, they're, they're just like, well, we figured if you didn't find us, that means you're probably still on the mountain and we'd have to come get you. What the what kind of human beings are you? Not let alone like you're probably having an affair. But that's just the stupid, weird thing that people wouldn't do. But it's not about sort of like their coldness or no, their disconnection. It's not like oh, this okay. Michael Hanukkah thing where that's actually like a point. Mm. It just plays like we don't know how human beings behave. Mm. This is from the director of Still Alice. Not an amazing movie, but a sensitive movie. Sensitive movie. A Gr- movie that great was... performance in the middle, anyway. Yeah, yeah. Julianne Moore and, and I think Kristen Stewart as well probably should have been Oscar nominated yeah. for that. As uh, Julianne Moore plays, if you haven't seen Still Alice, Julianne Moore plays a woman who has Alzheimer's. Early onset Alzheimer's. Yeah, very early onset Alzheimer's. And it turns out that it is, um, I think the word's congenital, like it might be going down to her kids. And Kristen Stewart finds out she might have it as well. And that's in her future. And it's their relationship. And. It's not a great story, but it's full of great performances and a lot of real sympathy and nuance. And there's none of that here, even though it's a great cast. The plot is stupid. The mystery is inert. Mm. The sensuality, if you could call it that, is brief at best and limp at most. (laughs) Uh, It's not a good movie. It doesn't sound like a It's a very bad film, and it's weird that when you compare a film, like, like, so the two movies I saw this weekend that nobody even heard of, Mm. of uh, Earthquake Bird, which is a metaphor that makes sense in the movie, but whatever, Uh, and Arctic Dogs... Arctic Dogs is better. (laughs) Arctic Dogs is a better film. I'm not going to call it good, but it's a better film. Arctic Dogs is a really low-budget CG animated movie about Arctic Dogs. Uh, is they're f- anthropomorphic Arctic Dogs, yes. right? Do they have they, their own town they, and things. Do they live with people or is nope. it just animals? Okay. Only animals. Animal uh, I think it's only animals in the whole world, but we really only see this one town in, in, the, in Alaska, I guess. So the Iditarod is like a marathon. Well, it's actually not about the Iditarod. It's actually mm. about um, like messenger huskies. Okay. So it's a small town in in Alaska somewhere. It's very isolated. And because it's so isolated, their only real connection to the outside world is through uh, sled dogs. Hmm. And the sled dogs, because they're all anthropomorphized and they pull the sled and everything like that, are a trio of huskies. And they're seen as local heroes. 
Hmm. Because, you know, they bring in the food and the medicine and all this great stuff. And they're really cool guys. And they tell the kids to stay in school and all that kind of stuff. And our protagonist is an Arctic fox named Swifty, played by Jeremy Renner. <laughs> Swifty. Swifty the fox. Right. Uh, Swifty the fox. Arctic foxes are pure white. And as a result, they're very well camouflaged in the snow. Mm. Swifty, as a result, uh, is often overlooked in his community, which is halfway <laughs> a joke. Um, and so he dreams of being a local celebrity like these dogs. So he wants to go into the sled dog industry. Mm. Cut to years later, he's an adult. He's working the conveyor belt. He wants to pull the sled, but he's a, a fox and he doesn't meet the weight requirement. Like, he has to weigh 20 pounds in order to pull a sled, and he's at, like, 19. And so he's permanently screwed. Uh, and then one time, uh, he, he ends up um, actually making one delivery, because there's one fox he's totally in love with named Jade, played by Heidi Klum for some reason. And uh, he ends yeah, up making... Good, good, good Halloween costumes, that Heidi Klum. Uh, very much yeah. so. That's 100% true. Uh he ends up making one delivery mm. to John Cleese as a cyborg walrus with spider legs. Sold. Right? <laughs> All the, like, where have you been my whole life, John Cleese as a cyborg walrus with spider legs? And let me tell you something. This movie has a cast. This movie has one of those animated movie casts where it's just like, here's who was free that week. Huh. We've got Alec Baldwin as a polar bear. Angelica Houston as a caribou. James Franco is a bird of some kind. <laughs> Heidi Klum is a fox mm. and also a mink for some yeah. reason. Omar Sy as another mink for some reason. <laughs> and they're all fine. Mm. I'd say Jeremy Renner's the one putting some real energy into it. And like Angelica Houston has some good bits. But the only one who's giving 110% is John Cleese. John Cleese doesn't give 110% anymore. He couldn't give 110% of through everything. Yeah, yeah, he doesn't have to do shit anymore. He doesn't bother. He is a very funny cybernetic walrus spider guy. He's very funny. His his scorn for all the other characters in the film is infectious. Huh. And I just he's 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 a great bit where like towards the end and he's like his plan's been foiled and he's just like okay well thank you everybody thank you everybody I, I see uh, a large mob of people I would like to thank you not for con for not converging angrily oh you are converging angrily well <laughs> <laughs> he's very very funny um, he's got a plan to destroy not just the town but also the uh, the global climate through fracking. Wait, so what? To, yeah. <laughs> okay. He's going to frack it all. And so they have to stop the fracking. And uh, uh, he kidnaps the huskies because they're getting in his way somehow. That's actually kind of mm. vague. And um, so it's left to Swifty to take over the, the job. And of course, he lets the celebrity go to his head a little bit. He loses his friends. Yada, yada, yada. It all works out basically okay. It is not a great movie. It is, <laughs> however, a functional kids film. Okay. There's really nothing in it that's negative. You know, that, like, you feel like your kid's going to learn something, you know, kind of maybe they shouldn't internalize something bad. Um, it's not terribly well animated, but it's not incompetently animated either. You know, mm. it's not Pixar, but it's better than TV. It's, it looks a little better than that Adams Family movie. Um, okay. And, uh, like, it's funny, but not very funny. I think I only laughed when John Cleese was talking. Um, it will distract your kids. And it will not offend your kids' sensibility. Mm. It's not too stupid for your kids. 
you will take a big old nap right in the middle. <laughs> this will be great for you. Like so this, mm. if if you need a movie to be a babysitter for wow. an hour and a half, you could do a lot worse than Arctic Dogs. So I'm just gonna I'm just gonna rubber stamp this mostly harmless, <laughs> and we're just gonna back kinda, away because it's not that it's that it's the only way we can judge a movie like this. But. Yeah, it's it's not trying much. It's mm. just trying to be you know family friendly. Friendly being the operative word. Mm. Likeable, inoffensive kids' material with some unassailable messaging about uh, being true to yourself, not letting you know the desire for attention or popularity go to your head, mm-hmm. and stopping global warming. Fine, and all fine. It's all fine. Mm-hmm. I'm not. I'm not going to fight this. All it's right. it's not good, but it's certainly not terrible. So fine, mm-hmm. you get a free pass, Arctic Dogs. <laughs> <laughs> I saw Earthquake Bird this weekend. You're fine. Tell me about Steve Bannon. Oh, God, must we? Apparently, so, yes. So speaking of dog people... One of the um, weirdest segues we've uh, ever done on the show. Oh, God. Um, S- Steve Bannon is the uh, crepuscular asshole who uh, has who is largely responsible for what we think of as the Trump ethos. Uh, he is one of those frustrating fellows to argue with because he's wrong about everything because everything he talks about is based on this aberration of white supremacy. Yeah. Uh, he is very clearly a white supremacist. He's a uh, sexist, racist, all of those horrible things and has taught himself to be well-spoken enough to sound like he's making points. Mm-hmm. Red, clearly read Ayn Rand at an he, early age. He's uh, done more in the last few mm-hmm. years to make white supremacist thought mm-hmm. seem like something that like, like stupid people would think smart people would believe. Uh, he, and, uh, he and others like in his circles are uh, – and he talks about um, – uh, Stephen Miller as well, sort of that he because he op- operated closely with Stephen Miller, uh, and, and this way of kind of selling white supremacy as no, it's just another point of view. Yeah, no, it's just this but, uh, is, it, this you is can't somebody, argue with someone, facts. Someone, yeah. this is just someone else's opinion, and you need to listen to our point of view. No, I don't, because white supremacy is an aberration and it needs to be wiped out. Yeah, and uh, that's not that's not saying wipe out people. Mm. The no, mindset, the, uh, the, is the idea aberration. of yeah, white supremacy needs to end, and. Uh, uh, unfortunately, Errol Morris, who has spent the last part, the most recent part of his career, kind of tracking down the biggest political monsters, uh, in his opinion, that he can find. Yep. He did one called The Fog of War, which is about Robert McNamara, who orchestrated the Vietnam War and didn't really seem to have too many qualms about that. Right. Who was the one so, he did with Robert with uh, Rumsfeld? It was, it was called uh, either the, the Known Unknown or the Unknown Known. It was called the Unknown Known. Ah. Uh, and that was about Donald Rumsfeld, who orchestrated every that quagmire that George W. Bush got us into in the Middle East. Right. Uh, and he's clearly a pacifist. He doesn't agree with ideas of war. And he is trying to get behind the thinking of the hawk, essentially. The people who think that war is just sort of a keen idea. Yeah. And uh, with McNamara and with Rumsfeld, these people have kind of thought about it a little bit. And even though they're sort of calcified into these kind of just grumpy old jerks who just want to see the world burn on a certain level. Yeah. They at least can int- answer his questions intelligently. Well, the other thing I will say about mm. um, those people mm. 
uh, is that when he interviewed them, the rain was over. I mean, yeah. granted, granted, Bannon is out of the White House, but the in, the the people he put in the White House are still there, so he yeah. doesn't have perspective on this in retrospect. Mm-hmm. And, it's uh, all happening now. And this is much different from any other Errol Morris film, because in his previous films, he, did, he relied on a lot of uh, reenactments. Uh, he pioneered something called the Interotron, which was something he invented, and it was a way of... Essentially setting up cameras and monitors uh, that allowed him to interview his subjects, which allowed him to make eye contact with them while they were looking right into the camera. And he felt that was very, very valuable. And I think it is. I I think it's a really kind of engaging way to have an uh, interview on screen. He does not use the Interatron with Steve Bannon. Uh, He's in the room with Steve Bannon and he's on camera this time. And I don't think he's ever been on camera before. He rarely interjected his own voice. Why? Um, what, what does I he think, get out of that? Well, I think he's trying to make Steve Bannon seem as as uh, uncinematic as he possibly can. Mm. First of all, he's just... I mean, I, I know we're supposed to like talk about his ideas, but he's also just a physically repulsive man, mm-hmm. uh, Steve Bannon. He has repulsive ideas. He's just hard to look at. And I think... We're, we're trying to uh, – Errol Morris is trying to drain him of his – like any sort of romance. And they try to put uh, some of his thinking into perspective, like where he went to school, how he takes a lot of inspiration from the 1949 film 12 O'Clock High with Gregory Peck, uh, which is – Odd. A f- yeah, it's a film about this sort of uh, – flagging uh, aerial unit during World War II who yeah. uh, just can't get the job done. And here steps in Gregory Peck, this like sort of strong bastion of manhood mm-hmm. who, t- you know, whips ta- them into yeah, shape. Whips them into them shape and, yeah, and, and, it's a good and, movie. I've seen it. And yeah. And, and he says that that's sort of like the pinnacle of masculinity for him. Oh, as the Gregory fuck Peck off. character. So he says he takes, and uh, uh. Errol Morris has reconstructed the bunker from that movie to interview Steve Bannon inside of. What? And, and, and as, as, and as the film... And, well, that defeats the purpose of not making him cinematic, doesn't it? But, yeah, at the same time, it's sort of like filming him at these angles. And I think Steve Bannon is such a, a slippery eel when it comes to interviews. And he tries to steer things around to his point of view seeming kind of legitimate. That Errol Morris gets frustrated and never has that moment where he gets him. There's yeah. a few moments where... Uh, like Steve Bannon says, like, what, how, who did you vote for in the last election? And he says, I voted for Hillary Clinton. And Steve Bannon says, oh, my goodness, how could have you done something so horrible as vote for Hillary Clinton? And Errol Morris, just in a moment of complete candor, gets to scream at him, because I was afraid of you. I didn't want y- people like you in charge. I thought you were going to destroy everything. I'm still afraid of what you're doing. And Steve Bannon has no response to that. He just sort of seems a little bit smug. Like, he succeeded. He got Errol Morris. And I think it's really frustrating to watch because what Steve Bannon is selling is so horrible. And that you want Errol Morris, who is a pretty thoughtful filmmaker, to get under his skin and sort of confront his lies. Now, he does so in editing. He sort of shows what Steve Bannon says and then shows headlines and evidence of the exact opposite of what he's saying. Right. But you want him to get him in that moment. You want him to corner Steve Bannon because he's cornerable. And somehow... <laughs> well, that's my point. Yeah. You can't get him now because he hasn't had... Yeah, he got kicked out of the White House. That probably would have been a good time. But uh, There's he, no moment of humility for well, him. Well, there's, there's yeah. no humility yet. Everything he installed... I mean, the specific people are largely gone. We've had more turnover this administration than I've ever seen in my life. But 
Trump is still president mm. for now. No, <laughs> we'll see as, how the impeachment as, as goes. We record but, this, yeah. but like, yeah, you know, he's <laughs> election he's, is exactly one year away. But like, they've had an enormous impact. They've installed multiple Supreme Court judges. They've mm. uh, installed judges all over America. Actually, who've got lifetime appointments. A lot of them. They've already effectively changed the country yeah. for the foreseeable future. He uh, won right now. Like, there's no point in him. Like, he, there's, I don't think there's any need for him to feel humility from his perspective. Mm. This is a weird time to interview him and try to get a gotcha. Yeah. Like, I'm reminded of um, the movie Frost Nixon, which is an excellent movie. People don't talk mm. about it enough. Uh, about uh, the... It really is quite good. It's a really <laughs> yeah. excellent film. Uh, Franklin Gella plays Richard Nixon. Uh, Michael Sheen... Michael Sheen plays Frost. Yeah, uh, who interviewed Nixon over the course of several days. And it was the first major in-depth interview Nixon had done since Watergate. Mm. And it was the opportunity to get him, get him on camera talking about the issue in such a way that people can actually finally hear him admit it or get some catharsis. And the entire movie is about how Nixon, for all his many flaws, was too canny a politician... To make that easy, mm-hmm. he was too good. Yeah, like he did some really terrible things, but he was smart. When they finally get him, and that gotcha moment, it's like mm-hmm. oh, the catharsis! It's like my heart just exploded with heroin. Like it's so good. Like everything in my body feels like a drug. Like it's so satisfying. <laughs> and I keep, I think about that movie a lot nowadays because that one brief tiny moment in that interview when mm-hmm. Nixon says that the president does it it's not illegal and Frost goes what <laughs> and you realize oh, we got him yeah <laughs> we got him got him on tape people in this administration say worse shit than that literally they, every they say day eight times a day and their trick is that they don't think it's wrong and they think they're doing a good job and there's so much of it we mm-hmm. can't even respond to it yeah it can't even like, grab a toehold we, we can't unpack all of it because we're, we're already three moments along yeah it's it's mm-hmm. insane how well that works like and it the really ca- chaos is. is an operating principle and so I think my thing is when you're within that chaos, mm-hmm. you're not going to get the catharsis you want out of yeah, Steve Bannon, yeah. and, and if think, you ever will. And I think uh, – I'm not exactly sure what Errol Morris was trying to get at. I think he really was trying to uh, reveal something dark about Stephen Bannon to himself. Yeah. Sort of like uh, uh, um, uh, The Act of Killing. Oh, we're, like we're trying, yeah. Like we're trying to get them to understand the damage that they've done. Mm-hmm. And 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 Act of Killing actually has a few pretty damning moments. If you haven't seen Act of mm. Killing, uh, still one of my favorite films of the decade. Do- documentary by Joshua Oppenheimer. It's really and, terrific. And others who had to go unnamed because they would be killed by their government yeah, if they yeah. found out they were involved. But it's about... Um, the Indonesian... Uh, genocide. The genocide in Indonesia. The, essentially, the, the military took over and just became like... They changed their own image to be like elderly statesmen, yeah, when all, really they were horrendous killers who had personally murdered thousands yeah. by hand. In, in, the, in the act of killing, Joshua mm. Oppenheimer interviews people who personally, by hand, mm. murdered hundreds if not thousands of people, yeah. individually. And they'll show you how they do it and the best way to strangle somebody. And it's absolutely shocking and horrifying. Mm. But what's even more shocking and horrifying is that because they won, they won that war... They walk around free as a bird. They are local celebrities. People like them. Hmm. They go to parties. And in the act of killing, 
Joshua Oppenheimer has the really weird but totally genius idea to give them cameras <laughs> and let them make a movie about that experience from their perspective. And they tell it from the perspective of Hollywood movies that they see themselves as because in their eyes, they're the heroes. Yeah. Yeah. It's illuminating <laughs> and terrifying. And there's a great companion piece <laughs> called The Look of Silence. Uh, which is about the brother of one of their victims just coming up to them mm. and telling them, getting them to talk about how happy they were that they committed that genocide, and then right to their face telling them, "My brother's a victim of that genocide," mm. and, and then the, watching them watching change. them waffle, yeah, and ooh, um, just I, what an incredible experience. I, I think the advantage Steve Bannon has over Errol Morris in this film yeah. is that he feels no shame. Yeah, uh, and, and that's something you'd say about uh, Donald Trump as well. He does all of these like really shocking things. He says all of these shocking things. He doesn't understand the impact a president saying these things would have, but he feels like just getting o- getting one over on his perceived political enemies is enough. Yeah, when really it's just throwing the world into chaos. Like you'll never. Cause that's uh, the thing. A lot of people have shame. Mm-hmm. the capacity to see when you've done something wrong or when you've been a hypocrite and mm-hmm. admit that you've been wrong. I don't know if we're ever going to get that from someone like Trump. Yeah, it's just and, not in him. And, and we're, I'm wondering if uh, Errol Morris will ever try to get Trump. I don't think he will. I don't think anybody's really interested. because Well, he did interview Trump once before. Uh, for the Academy Awards, he, yeah. uh, he interviewed a lot of famous people, politicians, actors, everybody, and just ordinary people as well, who uh, – just about, about their favorite movies. Yeah. And you can actually find the complete interview he does with Donald Trump, and it's pretty exciting – to see how grossly he misinterprets Citizen Kane. <laughs> Trump says his favorite movie is Citizen Kane. And for a second, I'm just like, okay, good on you, Trump. What do you yeah. got here? Turns out, Trump thinks Citizen Kane is the tragedy of a rich guy who married the wrong woman. That's, his, <laughs> that's what he got out of it. Uh, and I'm like, I appreciate, wow. for a second, I'm thinking, Trump understands the isolation of wealth. And how you don't connect with the right people, and maybe the wrong person. He doesn't behave like a person. It's yes. kind of easy to say. Like for a brief second, mm-hmm. I kind of see that maybe Trump is on an interesting wavelength here. But then it boils down to it's the woman's fault. Mm-hmm. Fuck you, and, it, and it's fuck a, you so much. And, and seeing we've seen the way he operates, it's entirely possible. Uh, somebody said Errol Morris is going to come interview. He's like, "Who's Errol Morris? He's going to talk about movies. Do you know what do you know about great movies? I better watch one." <laughs> I would not be sure. Yeah, it's, it, that 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 might have been the setup. Who's yeah. to say? Uh, but yeah, um, it, it's I, watching American Dharma is really really aggravating because you keep on waiting for that moment to come, and you realize that the audience and Errol Morris and everyone is just going to be frustrated by this guy who currently has the upper hand. By the end of the movie, he still has the upper hand, and uh, and it made me sad and filled me with dismay. Well, do you know what? Doesn't fill me with dismay? What doesn't fill you with dismay? Hallmark Christmas movies! You know what does fill me with dismay? <laughs> Hallmark Christmas movies. <laughs> We're back, baby. Uh, a lot of people Halloween have asked, is over, which means it's already Christmas. Uh, a lot of people have asked me, hey, you're going to do Hallmark Christmas movies again? Because uh, a couple of years ago, we had another podcast. Uh, I was way late in Christmas after knee surgery and spent two months doing nothing but sitting on the couch watching Hallmark Christmas movies, and it was all I could review on the podcast, so I'd review like six a week. Yep. Uh, it was a glorious I, I was, time. I was out in theaters like doing the hard work trying to get the new releases in, and you were <laughs> stuck on the couch watching The Cookie Miracle or whatever the <laughs> fuck you were watching. Now, um, you and Alonso Duralde, co- uh-huh. co-host of the Linoleum Knife podcast, and an 
important muckety muck in the critical community. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the two of you have some sort of weird masochistic urge to fill your bloodstream <laughs> with whole grain flour and sugar <laughs> in the form of these Hallmark Christmas movies, yep. which are unilaterally terrible. That's not true. There's, uh, there's like three good ones. For, <laughs> of, there are, of, of the 8,000 that come out every year, maybe there's three There's like total. There's like three genuinely oh. good ones and four. At least one other one that I would say is good on an ironic level. To call them saccharin is a, is an insult to sweet and low. <laughs> uh, it's they're they're dull as dry toast. The main characters uh, have no personality. No one has any personality. They're uh-huh. directed without any kind of soul or budget or skill, mm-hmm. and they promote an an operational philosophy. That is so closed-minded and weird yeah. that it's kind of odd that it's meant to be some kind of form of an American ideal. There's there's an element of the Hallmark Christmas movie. Hmm. There's a few that buck this mold, but generally speaking, they're all about how Christmas and Christmas traditions, and very little of it has anything to do with religion. It's all hmm. like... It's all, Super, all the secular stuff. Yeah, it's, it's mostly the secular stuff. You know, there's Santa, but like it's the Coca-Cola version of Santa mm-hmm. or whatever. Um, it's all about how loving Christmas mm-hmm. will solve everything, and a lot of the <laughs> a lot of the worst films, in particular, in the in the Hallmark Christmas genre, mm-hmm. uh, are almost indistinguishable from The Wicker Man. It's just <laughs> it's just instead of like. <laughs> Killing you at the end. You're just one of them now, and now mm-hmm. you like Christmas. Um, yeah, so the Hallmark Christmas movie, they put out, I think, three new Hallmark Christmas movies every week from the last weekend in October to Christmas Day. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they play nonstop Christmas movies all day, uh, every day, uh, from the end of October until, I think, the December 31st. Oh, ow, my hat. My, it hurts my head just to think about it. Um, there's a lot to unpack with the Hallmark Christmas movie. Mm-hmm. And we'll talk about it a little bit as I watch some more of these. Because although I still can't afford cable, I was able to get a hookup with uh, a streaming service called, I think it's Friendly? F-R-N-D-L-Y. Friendly. I, I like, I, it's it's a green font, so I like to call it Frondly. <laughs> okay. Um, but, uh... It is a streaming service, and what they do is they give you a very limited cable package mm-hmm. of very family-friendly channels. So there's yeah. like the Travel Channel and the Hallmark Channel and a couple other things. And you can watch it live, or you can do your own mini on demand, but only for those like 10 channels. Mm-hmm. It's not a bad service, honestly. If you watch those channels, that's, that's really not bad. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not getting paid for them or anything like that, but they're giving me access to Hallmark when I can't afford cable right now. So... Honestly, kudos to kudos to Frondly. Front, okay. Um, so uh, I was able to get that hooked up, and I will be able to do a few of these. Okay, maybe one a week. Okay, maybe. Uh, but the first new one I was able to see this year is called Christmas Scavenger Hunt. Now, I realize the cl- the title might be a little too clever a metaphor, so I'm just gonna mm-hmm. uh, lay lay it out real fast. This movie's about a Christmas scavenger hunt. Yeah. 
right. So there's a white woman in a red sweater. You're right. She's divorced. No, no, no. unlucky in love. No, no. Uh, you, you, third option. There's workaholic. Uh, okay. First off, first off, uh, divorce really isn't a thing in Hallmark Christmas movies. Okay. Almost got married. Broke it off at the last minute. Very That's what common. You no. Okay. Almost got married. Broke it off last minute. Very common. Mm. Uh, busy businesswoman who only loves business. Ninety uh, percent of the time. Ninety percent of the time doesn't understand Christmas. Goes to a small town, learns the value of Christmas. That's very, very common. I, I want to realize. I realize that I use that term, busy business person who only loves business, so often mm. that I just found out that some people think I invented that. That's actually a John Mulaney expression. Oh, okay. <laughs> he was talking about a fake movie he'd come up with All about right. Jerry Orbach's disembodied eyes. But <laughs> a great bit, by the way. <laughs> A great bit. John Mulaney is a comedy genius. All right. Um, <laughs> um, so that's also very, very common. We have, uh, I think, arguably the second most common trope mm. uh, in Christmas Scavenger Hunt, which is woman who loves Christmas dating busy businessman who only loves business. Uh, okay. She's got to go to a small town. He agreed to go with her for the holidays, but... Just before they're about to leave, he had a big meeting, so she's got to go on her own and reconnect with her old boyfriend. Mm. And, if there's and, one and they're thing, both, like, just blandly handsome white dudes. Uh, one more blandly handsome white dude than the other, but mm. yes. Okay. Uh, she goes to a small town, and it's actually an interesting, or at least interesting as far as the genre goes, <laughs> uh, inversion, because she is a busy business person who loves Christmas. Okay. And what we find out, she loves Christmas, she came from a Christmas-loving community. She's going to go back to that Christmas-loving community where they have a scavenger hunt. We'll get to it. But she's also been tasked, because she works for some sort of real estate firm, to help arrange a deal where this big corporation that wants to put in condos in the, in the community is going to buy up the local like thing with legacy history. Mm. You know, It's like, oh, no, you can't sell the old movie theater. Oh, we all have memories of that movie theater. Oh, no, you can't sell Johnson's Barn. Oh, we have barn dances there every year. You can't sell that. You can't sell the Christmas tree lot. And what they have for Christmas scavenger hunt, I'll give them credit here because I did not say this coming. The thing that they don't want to sell because it has so much value to the community is the old textile museum. Wow, so the most boring thing imaginable. <laughs> That's the, the thing! The old textile museum is something you, your parents threatened you with. <laughs> it's like the worst When you're field on a trip road you, trip, it's like, the okay. The worst field trip you ever took in fourth grade. Yeah, let's go to the textile museum. No, they're, they're, I'm of the age where <laughs> considering going to a textile museum might seem like something interesting. For I, like a minute. I went to a museum in Maui, which told me all about sugar production. Oh, yeah, I've been that there. Was, that that, that place pretty, was cool, yeah. Was pretty, pretty fascinating. Because it's also like a sugar like plantation, and they grow it there, and you oh, can and, see and, them. And like, sugar you know, was a yeah. big way of connecting Hawaii to the mainland. King yeah. Kamehameha had a big hand in the sugar production. I, I've been there. That's a really um, nice tour, actually. So... Uh, I'm of the age when, like, you'd think a textile museum might be kind of interesting. <laughs> I'm not that old yet. Also. I'm not 69 years old yet. So this is, like, this is so, the thing they have. 
This is what we're supposed to so, get. Inve- this is uh, the youth center in Breaking 2. It's the old textile museum. So when you say we need to save the textile museum, my response is burn the fucker. Right? I'm watching this and I'm like, I'm, you're hearing this guy because like the guy she used to date. And there's this whole sad story about they were supposed to go to college together. But just at the last minute, he decided to stay in their small town. And that's why they never got married. <laughs> so sad. I, I'm, I'm, I'm sure it's horrible that these these two bland walking loaves of white bread never never humped. You don't understand. <laughs> <laughs> you don't understand. He runs. No, the I text- do understand. He works at the textile museum now. So oh, it's going to so be that- such a huge betrayal what when he betrayal. finds out to just get around the textile museum. But I'm like, yeah. At the same time, I'm like, I don't, I don't give a shit. Make the condos. <laughs> like I really, you've not so, done the work. On it. You know, we ne- you know what we never see the inside of hmm. the textile museum. The, uh, we ne- we see the outside, and it's just a dumb this, fucking building with no one in it. If there's one thing that the the quote small towns in in these Hallmark Christmas movies need, mm-hmm. it's gentrification. <laughs> just get an Applebee's in there for God's sake. <laughs> um, er- erase this town. <laughs> Um, the big get, mm. and by big, it's usually, you know, someone who used to be famous in the 90s. Yeah. Uh, the uh, the protagonist's dad is played by Tom Arnold, who's been in a few okay. of these. Tom Arnold, not the world's greatest actor, but always, mm. always a fun presence. But Tom w- Arnold. Wonderfully cynical human being, I yeah, think. Yeah, I, I have some respect for Tom mm. Arnold. Honestly, I do. Mm-hmm. Um, you, know, you know what movie's funnier than has any right to be? Big Bully. I never saw Big Bully. Funnier than you'd think. I saw Bibs and Bobs of Carpool, the one with David Beamer. No, 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 no. <laughs> no, 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 no. From, from that era. Uh, he plays the protagonist's uh, mm. father. He, and I mean Tom Arnold, not his character. Mm. Um, I'm worried about his health. Like, I don't know if he was getting over walking pneumonia or something, but he, the entire movie sounds like he can't catch his breath. Hmm. And you're, you're distracted by it. It's like when you're watching... Um, Clash of the Titans and Pete Postlethwaite plays uh, 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 Blandy McBlanderson's Sam Worthington's father, <laughs> and he's so frail. It was like a year before he died. Mm. He's so frail. You're you're like, is it safe to put him in a movie? Mm. Feels like you're exploiting him right now. Like I don't know if Tom Arnold just had a really fucking bad cold the week he shot that film or what, but it's really distracting. Anyway, they go on a Christmas scavenger hunt. Here's how the Christmas scavenger hunt works. Uh, they get a whole bunch of people and you pair them off randomly. What are the odds? She ends up with her ex-boyfriend. Mm. And uh, they are given clues. And the clues make them do Christmas stuff. Oh, what are we going to do? What sort of Christmas stuff are we going to do? And there's like a really long, like, eight stanza poem that's really, really obviously build a snowman and take a picture of it. Yeah. There's a really okay, long now. poem, and it's like, oh, you gotta, you gotta okay. make cookies. Build a snowman, we'll make some gingerbread cookies, now give birth to the Messiah! <laughs> Do it now! There's one, okay, so there's a lot of them are real simple. Take a picture with the local Santa Claus, get yourself a snow globe, little things, and these are all fine. It probably would be a reasonably fun thing to do with a significant other. Like, you spend one day running around town, doing all the Christmas things in town. Rob a tall building! Yeah, like, like seriously, like, all these things are fine. The second to last, or like the third to last thing they have to do is make a child's wish come true for Christmas. All right. But not buy him a present. 
You have to oh, like have go to above like Christmas beyond. magic. So yeah. there's like this kid who shows up. Like, as well as wanted a sister or something. Their <laughs> dad died in the war or yeah. something. Yeah. So like, there's a bit at the beginning where this kid like is like in line to see Santa while they got to take the picture with Santa. It's like, oh, it's little Billy. Mm-hmm. Hey, Billy, how you doing? And it's this kid who's never taken acting lessons in his life. Mm-hmm. Like, I got nothing against the kid, but he's. He's no he's, he's 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 no Jake Lloyd. I'm like, going to go to Detroit and get a job in the auto industry. Yeah, like basically. Mm. So the kids just like, "Hi guys. Mm. I'm in a movie." And uh, so we can show, show to his friends in elementary school. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm uh, going to be um ask Santa for a very special wish. Oh, what what you, you get them, uh, Billy? Oh, my mom's in the war and I want her here. And they're like, "Oh, okay. Good for you. Good what are the odds?" Wouldn't it be cool if they they actually like end the war? Like they actually like go in and like like get the the two countries to like have some diplomacy. And... Mom, Mom is in Afghanistan or Iraq or one of those. She's across the fucking globe. Mm. This movie mostly takes place over the course of a day, by the way. The scavenger hunt does anyway. So they find mm. out they need to solve this kid's magic wish, and then the guy's just like, "Oh, thank God." I was already flying her out here for, for Christmas. And he, she's like, how did you do that? And he's just like, well, the Marine Corps sponsors part of the textile mill. What? <laughs> so, yeah, so I called in some favors from the Marine Corps. And we just had them fly his mom back. And I'm just <laughs> like, under what pretense? It's like, you said... She just gets to go home for Christmas and no one else does? Well, she's the only one in the Marine Corps whose family missed them? <laughs> yeah, seriously. What the fuck is this shit? There's one way this movie... Uh, again, this, listen, this movie is pure milk toast, nothing wrong, meat and potatoes, Hallmark Christmas. This is not a bad Hallmark Christmas the, movie. They're oh, all kind of dumb. It's not meat and potatoes. It's more like bologna and munchos. Whatever. That's, that's good eating regardless. My point is... Mm. Uh... It's it, it, what frustrates me about it is that it actually almost could have been really funny, and the reason why it isn't mm. is because they made one choice, and I think a lot of it is because of budget or uh, just for simplifying the the production. Everyone in the scavenger hunt is doing things in a different order. Everyone okay. gets their clues in a different order, so they're not all doing the same thing all the time. Makes sense. Um, it does make sense, especially from considering you logistical just, perspective. From a logistical yeah. perspective, you don't want everyone running around town with that, but you also want to leave like you know our people who had history together to bond and talk and all that kind of stuff, and all that's fine. But it would have been so much funnier if everyone was doing the same shit at the same time, and it turned into like rat racing. I was about to say a little more frantic. Yeah, like if you imagine, like, and I'm picturing this exact same basic setup. Nothing wrong with the basic well, there's, setup. There's one snowman, but everybody has to take a picture with a snowman. Yeah, so exactly. You have to start improvising and pushing people out of the way. Yeah, and yeah. you have like one couple is played by Eugene Levy and Catherine mm. O'Hara, and another oh, one is played by <laughs> Jennifer Saunders and yeah, Eddie not? Izzard, and like, and then, like, like why not French and Saunders? <laughs> why not French and Saunders? I don't know, but like, like yeah, like. Oh wait, queer people don't exist in these movies. I'm starting to see some coded queer people. Here, here and there, here maybe. and there, here and there. It's it's a start, 
It is a start. Yeah, okay, can we? Yeah, wait another fifty years. We might have a man kiss another man on the mouth. Okay, let's not go nuts. <laughs> Hallmark Hallmark films work within very specific uh, parameters. Uh, you know what? You will not see yeah, homophobic any, parameters. Very homophobic yeah. parameters. Very racist parameters. Yeah. Really a lot. Of, they, they're no getting mis- a little, no miscegenation in these movies. They're, they're getting a little better at it, but it's mm. not good. And like, if you notice, like the movies they make now versus the movies they made five years ago, you will see more people of color. Right. In minor supporting roles. <laughs> like in the background. But they're there, and mm. that is undeniably some improvement. Mm. Um, every once in a while, you'll get, like, Vivica Fox playing someone's mm. editor at a newspaper, and she does her entire, the entire movie, like, on the phone from her desk, because mm. they can only get her for half a and day. she doesn't even stand up. Yeah. Like, <laughs> for the for Hallmark mm. money, Vivica Fox doesn't stand up. <laughs> no. She will show up, but she will not stand up. Um like watching Cameron Mitchell eventually is just never like it's not even gonna get out of his chair. But like it was actually like there's actually like something kind of funny here that you could have done. You mm. raise the stakes a little bit, make the scavenger hunts things like a little funnier. It's not a bad idea for a Christmas movie. It's it's simple, mm. but it's fine. Mm. It's fine. <laughs> That's. That's where we're starting off here. That's our baseline. Mm. So uh, buckle up, because there'll be more Hallmark Christmas movies to come, and maybe some of them will be better or worse than... Mm. Fine. So, uh, on the critically acclaimed scale of C- to C+, where C is average, C- is below average or Mm. bad, yeah, and C- is above average or great, uh, Christmas Scavenger Hunt... Is going to be on a sliding scale. <laughs> it's going to be on a on a. We're going to put, we're going to rate this one in context with other Hallmark movies. So we're we're on a severe curve here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like we're not going to compare Christmas Scavenger Hunt to The Irishman, but we will compare it to other Hallmark movies. And on that level, it's a C. It's fine. It's 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 perfectly vapid. The whole the whole Hallmark Channel is designed right now for you put it on at any time while you're doing something Christmassy, decorating the house, mm-hmm. baking you can, cookies, you can pick doing up the cards. story and the characters instantly. Real yeah. simple. It's just it's just wallpaper. That's all it is right now. But it's fun wallpaper. Let's move on. All right, all right. Please uh, let's move on. Tell me about uh, your Steve Bannon movie. Is that a C minus C <laughs> uh, or C plus? It's a C. I think that uh, Errol Morris. Uh, had a good idea and a good you know choice of subjects, but I think the film is is not it's kind of got away from him in a way. Well, mm. Worst things have happened. Uh, okay, so Arctic Dogs. Mm. See, <laughs> it's 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 practically the definition of a mediocre movie. Mm. Like everything is fine. Mm. The only thing that's better than fine is John Cleese, but he's not in it a lot, so it's a C. It's nice. it's a throw it on while your kids are doing stuff. It won't enrich their lives, but it won't make them any worse for the wear. What was um, the but- butterfly washing machine? What was it called? <laughs> Earthquake Bird. Earthquake Bird. Earthquake Bird is a big old C minus. Earthquake just Bird a, box. It's a bad mystery. It's mm-hmm. a bad romance. It's a bad character study. It's a bad drama. It it's does a bad not title. Work. It's, it's a, a bad title. Yeah. Like it sounds like something that should be interesting. Like ooh, sounds Earthquake like a jewel bird. record. Like, you know, Earthquake Bird. What does that mean? Yeah. That should be interesting to discover. Turns out the Earthquake Bird is uh, after an earthquake mm. when birds start chirping because everything's fine. That's the Earthquake Bird. Ah, yeah. It's I'm gonna bet on Earthquake Bird at the next Kentucky Derby. Like Earthquake Bird sounds like half of a Giallo title. 
Like, yeah, like earthquakes. Em- <laughs> emptiness in the eye of the earthquake bird would be yeah. uh, the, the original Italian title of something. Exactly. Yeah. But it just, they'd never, it has no personality. It has no focus. It has no perspective. It's hardly a film. It's, <laughs> it's really, really bad. It really rubbed me the wrong way. Can't wait to see. I like Riley Keough. She was really good in uh, American Honey. I didn't see American um, Honey. I do like she her, was really, She's really, really great in um, uh, the, the Steven Soderbergh heist, the blue-collar heist movie he did. Oh, uh, Logan Lucky. Logan Lucky. Yeah, she is yeah, good in that. She's I liked her in that a lot. Yeah. Uh, I think it's the first time I really noticed her. But yeah, mm. she's really good in that. Um, okay, uh, so The Irishman. Irishman C+. It's terrific. Okay. It's, it's sensitive and grand in ways movies really are. Um, I, I also agree it's a C plus. Mm. I think it's it's a profound bit of filmmaking, especially in context mm-hmm. with Kubrick uh, Kubrick with uh, Scorsese. Wow, it's late. <laughs> uh, with Scorsese's other work, um, it's not my favorite Scorsese. I think it's a bit drab in the middle, but the overall impact okay. uh, is so significant. It's got to mm. be a C plus. Uh, and then Terminator: Dark Fate. It's pretty bad. Didn't like it. You know, it's C minus. What the heck? I, I I don't think I there's there's nothing moving me to recommend this to people. You can skip over this one and let it be lost in the trash heap of time, and we'll be okay. All right, I think this movie is great, and I'm giving it a C plus. And I actually really admire the way it takes the Terminator uh, uh, framework and reapplies it to a modern era, and discovers new things to say with it. Mm. Uh, so I highly recommend you see it if you can, and eventually it'll be out of theaters within a couple of weeks. At this point, you'll see it on home video, and I think you'll realize it's. Better than Whitney is saying. But whatever. We don't disagree this vehemently very often. I'm going to let it slide. <laughs> I think it's a C+. I think it's one of the better action movies of the year. Um, the action is fine. The action is pretty well, spectacular. No, but, but, I'm, not just, talk, I'm not saying the action. I'm not right. saying the best action sequences of the year. Because right. I actually don't think it has the best action sequences of the year. Right. I think it's one of the better action movies of the year as a complete experience. All right. We disagree. Mm. Uh, And that is it for Critically Acclaimed. We'll be back next week with tons of new movie reviews, uh, including Doctor Sleep, the sequel to The Shining, uh, Midway, the uh, threequel to The Shining, and (laughs) Last Christmas, the fourquel to The Shining. I love fourquels. Yeah. Uh, those are very different films. Um, we don't use the word threequel anymore. It was kind of kind of struck from from the vernacular. Oh, I use it whenever I can. Yeah. Um, yeah, so we got those coming up. What, what what's the newest like soft rebooting or uh, requel is the re- one I requel. Like. Requel the... is when you make a sequel to certain films in a franchise but ignore other films in the franchise, like Terminator Dark Fate. Yeah, like Terminator Dark Fate yeah, or the, the 2018 the... Halloween or whatever, or Terminator Genesis yeah. or um, yeah. Anyway, stop that. <laughs> <laughs> we we keep doing new weird dumb stuff. We need new words for it. What we need is new, weird, dumb stuff. I agree with that. All right. right. So that's all coming next week. Thank you, everybody, for listening. You can find us on Twitter at Critic Acclaim. I am at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. If you want to email us for a letters podcast called We've Got Mail, Mm -hmm. uh, you can email us letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. And uh, we're at patreon.com slash critic acclaim. Uh, if you've already signed up, the next thing I'm about to say is irrelevant. But if you haven't yet, uh, stay tuned because we will be changing the name of the Patreon page within the next week. Yeah. I just want to give everyone uh, as much heads up as I can about that. Um, if you've already subscribed, this won't affect you. Worst case scenario, you might have to switch up your RSS feed. That's Worst right, case yeah. scenario. You're um, still going to have access to everything. Everything is fine. Nothing's going to change. Just the title. Um 
And, uh, yeah, so thank you, everybody, for listening. We hope you have a great week. Uh, we've got a ton of new stuff coming on this channel. It's coming up soon, so really excited for that. We're going to finally wrap up uh, Ghastly-tober with uh, Kolchak the Night Stalker's reboot. Night Stalker. The Night Stalker. Yep. And then uh, coming up in November, we have got Suddenly Last Season, where we're going to review a whole bunch of TV shows that got canceled just last season after their first season, including... Uh, Tuka and Birdie and Swamp Thing, amongst others. Mm. So uh, it's going to be an uh, exciting time. Ha-ha. <laughs> anyway, I'm running out of stuff to say. Mm. Uh, goodbye, everybody. Have a great week. And never forget, everyone is a critic. I want to go to the Midnight Show. I'm sorry, what? <laughs>